Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, Kyle. Here we go. And cut the music. Okay. What is up? Oh, you know, just... uh. Chilling here on this beautiful... It's almost like it, we're getting to fall, you know? We are. It feels nice out again. Listen, the morning, the mornings feel so good. And when I, when I walk my daughter to the bus stop, by the time I get home, I'm like inspired. I want to go running. Yeah. And I haven't... First of all, I never... Even when I ran a lot, I never enjoyed it. Yeah. But just, the, the, just imagining running down the street in that like 72 degree... Maybe it was even like in the, in the high 60s. No, you know, not really a breeze, but it was just sort of, and the, and the tree, the tree leaves haven't turned colors yet, so everything's still green. Mm-hmm. God damn, it's such such a beautiful morning. Yep. Every morning has been such a beautiful morning. Yep, really has been. Uh, for you know, it was real hot there for a while though, so I, I it's welcome on, on a lot of different levels. Um, yeah, I don't know, just a little weather talk. <laughs> <laughs> just a little weather talk. Brought to you by the Two Tongues Podcast. Uh, <clears throat> Well, it's I, I listen, I'm happy to see you here. Um so COVID has been the vid. So, socially it's been really I didn't realize actually how you know how like if you don't practice a skill, it just it just atrophies. Atrophies, yeah. yeah. So I go out on Thursday for a work thing where I'm around people and it was like a lot of people, <laughs> you know, like fifty people. And I knew a lot of them. And I was with my wife, and she didn't know them, although she's heard about them, a lot of them, a lot, because I, you know, talk about them. And so I had to introduce her to all these people. So I found myself in this kind of intense social situation that I haven't been in in two years. And I yeah. thought I thought I was just going to stroll back into that thing and just, just be charming and funny. And I was, it was difficult, man. Really? It was difficult. Like, on in what way? I, well, first of all, I felt like... Every like I I didn't know what to say, and everything I did say kind of sounded like I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> and uh, it, uh, and I felt like I was being pulled in a thousand different directions because I wanted to go say hi to everybody all at once, and and then I, I was like kind of forgot that I was there with my wife, you know, like at some point she's talking to other people all by herself. She handled it like a champion. She was just like making friends and being beautiful, and uh, and I like turn around. I'm like, oh shit, I'm like, <laughs> I got to introduce you to my wife, and then. And I just carry on and don't introduce them anyway. Sure. And it was just like a lots of like awkwardness, really. Yeah, the way I was laughing there because everything you just described about how you felt after being in isolation for two years is just like my life all the time. That's just like <laughs> me. But it didn't used to be. I used to be like outgoing and crazy when I was a teenager. Do you remember that? For sure. Yeah, I for used sure. to be like like I wanted to 
like I was emulating the jackass guys all the time. Yep. Um, yeah, something just changed, man. Now it's like I am a hermit, you know? You know what my, my favorite part, my favorite memories are of that, of that era is, uh, is yelling at people, at strangers, like the most ridiculous things. Oh, yeah. Um, or pretending that you're related to them, you know, a stranger that you bump into at the mall or, oh, or yeah. whatever. Oh, yeah. Golly, that was some funny shit, man. That was funny, man. Um, yeah, back in the day, <laughs> things you, changed. But you put that kind of social pressure on somebody in public, <laughs> and you're so confidently looking at them and talking to them like you know each other, and yeah. they don't know how to respond. They'll pretend to know you, man. That is funny as <laughs> it hell. It is funny. Oh boy, it also seems mean now. Um, I don't know. It didn't to me. It seemed even now. It seems like I don't know. Maybe a little rude, I guess. But uh, I don't know if it seems mean. Well, listen, you did that. Like, I know you business to like young people like us, but also to old people. Yeah, and you're like uncles, uncle, whatever, yeah. and like you know. He, but these strangers don't even want to tell you. Listen, that's not my name because they feel bad. You put them in a position where they feel bad that you're that you're misunderstanding <laughs> them for somebody else. That's funny. Yeah, it's actually like a like a, you know you can imagine that as like a experiment for somebody's psychology. Oh like yeah, dissertation or something. Yeah, going out and doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, now I feel the way that you were describing yourself at that work get together. Yep. That's how I feel all the time. Mm. So I don't know where you might imagine that started, but I can tell you what what I what comes to my mind is during that. You remember when we did the not so good old days episode, yeah. like one of our very first episodes, yeah. Uh, when we talked about that dark period when you were you were living with Matt in that apartment, mm-hmm. and uh, like I would come over as like my two best friends are living here, and there'd be times where you wouldn't even like you'd just be in your bedroom for long stretches of time, and like you know it was you could tell, man, it was a that there was a period where you were drawing away. Yeah. And even for me, and I, we've known each other since we were fucking five years old. Yeah. So that's where I think it started, or, but it probably developed or from an earlier, you know, I don't know. I think uh, there were t- times before that that I think contributed, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. yeah interesting. Um, I will say that there are definitely things about being more introverted that I like, that I, I like look back and I'm like... Uh, I appreciate this more about myself now than I appreciated that about myself then. Mm. Um, But, you know, it would be like, I talk a big game about like wanting to have community and stuff like that. Uh, And you're not going to do that by not being friendly. You know, it's hard work. It's Mm -hmm. it's hard work, you know, to maintain a friendship. Like there's a certain minimum amount of effort you have to put into it. And, you know, I'm grateful for people like you and and Matt, uh, you know, and, and, I don't have to like worry about that. Like if you and I don't talk to each other for a year, when we when oh. we see each other again, it's going to be right back. First of know. all, that would never happen an entire <laughs> year. I mean, we've definitely we've had some like like maybe a couple month stretches where we didn't really talk in the past, but uh I would say that's probably about it. I mean, mm. But you know what I mean? Oh, I do know exactly what you mean. If for, if for some reason like, you know, like I joined the army or something, yeah. which that's funny. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, it would be. I know exactly what you mean. I'm still laughing at you joining the army. Hell yeah! <laughs> I used to want to, man, back in the day. I, yeah, I had a little period of time. You, you read that Substack that I wrote? Did yes. you read both of them? I just the one you said dru- uh, about the police, about the police and the bus. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I got another one that, that is actually earlier than the police one, and I talk about kind of what made me into a political person mm. and it was September 11th uh, because 
I didn't really give a fuck about any of it before that. And I got off to a bad start because of September 11th. You know, I was basically like a full-blown neocon when that shit happened. You know, like, let's go fucking get him, Toby yeah, Keith, baby. Yeah, Toby Keith. <laughs> you were 18 years old. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, uh, but, you know, it's like that uh, That propaganda, The this me- corporate media propaganda, it's strong, man. It is strong. You know what else is strong is the kind of like, uh, instinct, like like a biological instinct, to protect the the tribe. Sure, and it, it's something that it, it it like awakens in you when you're like in your teenage years. And it's it's as far as I'm concerned, it's strictly for males. It's like an evolutionary adaptation to protect your community from from yeah. danger. And when what's going to happen is your kids are going to your boys are going to get to a certain age. They're going to be triggered like those sleeper cell Russian agents. They're going to get triggered by their fucking hormones to become warriors. And you and I were fucking warriors at that age. And when that happened, our you know, it, it was like we had no other choice. It was like a determinism thing. Our hormones were saying, "Go to war, sir." And yeah. we were like, "I will I will follow the call of freedom." You know what I mean? <laughs> freedom is a free. <laughs> uh and so it, I mean just imagine that. It's like the power that is the massive reach of the corporate media and just like their ubiquitousness. And they played on the biological instincts yeah, exactly. of children. The power that both of those powerful forces <laughs> like joined together. Yeah. I'm lucky I didn't. I'm lucky that I was fat, too fat to join the military. <laughs> um, My eyes are so much more open, uh, maybe since we started this podcast, just to the amount of manipulation that goes on. And like I, I was, I was hip to the to the fact that it was coming from the media, but I wasn't exactly appreciating how its propaganda is built into the culture and the oh, language, yeah. and you know everybody is trying to manipulate you, and we manipulate each other all the time sure. for all sorts of reasons, and we're fi- and we're generally fine with it. It's just accepted. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know either. Tell me about. Um, this situation because you were supposed to um, oh you were supposed to go on a podcast I believe for uh, another, yeah. another person's podcast and I ha- had waited really to ask you about it because I figured we'll talk about it on the podcast cool uh, well let's talk about it man alright um, yeah I went on the reality czars podcast and uh, they they're a couple of good guys Nate and Tony um, shout out to Nate and Tony yeah yeah that, that was great it was a lot of fun um and it made me realize that I need to be more prepared to record at home. So I need to like get some stuff because that was an ordeal. Um, and it was an ordeal on my part because I didn't have, you know, like I had, I have my laptop, but I don't know where my charger is. It's lost. So oh. I can't use my laptop. So I was trying to use my phone. Uh, and that ended up not really being an option for some reason. It's just like, uh, I don't know, some kind of techno- technological glitch mm. uh, that I couldn't really use my phone. Um, so I had to use Chelsea's laptop, uh, and I didn't have a microphone. I was just like talking to the, the computer. Mm. Um, so we'll see how it sounds. They, oh. they kind of, uh, backlog theirs. Like when I was recording, they said that they had recorded an episode with Aaron from timeline earth. Um, and then that released like a few days after okay. that. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear when it does air, so we'll have to bring that back up so folks know. Yeah, it was cool though. I mean, basically it was, you know, basically just us talking shit just you know kind of an airing of grievances if you will <laughs> so what did, what did you learn about the reality czar guys anything um i learned that they're both really cool dudes that guy uh nate 
hipped me to some cool anarcho-Christian stuff, yeah. which I am particularly interested in recently. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I so I, t- I mentioned earlier that I think community is important, you know? Um, right. And I just think that religious community is one of the easiest and probably highest quality communities to put yourself into. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, so... My mind's going all sorts of directions right now. When you say highest quality, and I, two things come into my mind. Like a very genuine experience of like a church family, especially if it's a small church and everyone knows each other, and they, maybe it's multi-generational, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. that those people are like a big extended family. And every freaking Sunday uh, dinner is like a family reunion, and that's awesome And it's, if it's genuine. But then there's also that that super fo- fake, oh yeah, phony. Oh it's yeah, like everybody gets in their Sunday best. They don't look like they look all week. They don't talk like they talk all week. 100%. They, pre- they pretend to be holier than thou. Like I'm a fucking, you know what I mean? So there's that that just makes me think. You know what kind what kind of community is based on everyone's persona getting together, and then you know the six the other six days of the week there are other people. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. You know, having spent a lot of time in church as a younger person i have seen both of those i think that my parents currently are in a church that is like the first one that you mentioned like good community that you know they're all um i don't know good genuine people um and they take care of each other that's like yes that's what you know that's the par- part of it that really matters it's especially if you know like there are churches where people come from out of state to go to that church mm. That is not what I would want. I would want a close community. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Um, so that, like, you know, yeah, you see each other on Sundays. Uh, maybe you see each other on Wednesdays at, like, Bible study or something. But you're also like, hey, you know, my friend Ted needs help putting up a barn. You know, like, Amish shit. Like, yeah. Basically, oh, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. That's Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. You know, it's and it's funny because not having that kind of a, of a... Not having those resources at your disposal... Um, it makes you more likely to de- depend on the government. Yeah, and it's you know, in all sorts of ways. So it's interesting, and it's inter- also interesting that you f- see the appeal in having a small like community, or even if it's part of your, like your religious community, have something small. And and you say the exact same thing about about government that it should be small. So there's a there's a very consistent theme yeah, going man. through your you know preferences. I think it's, and I think that you would agree with this. It's easier to affect things when you're concentrating on that level you know yeah so i, I just think that that's the best idea um hold on i don't want to get off the anno, anarcho-christian th- theme so nate in- introduces you to this idea or gives you some resources and you're looking taking a deeper dive so so you you brought up that you kind of grew up in the church and that, i think that's interesting especially because you pulled back from it like you know any adult would maybe have expected during your rebellious years that you pulled back from it but that now you're seeing an appeal and what's in this in this anarcho-christian idea and what's interesting is what pulled you away from the religious ideas were those were those anarcho you know the anarchy ideas and atheism ideas mm-hmm. those were the ones that pulled you away and now we're talking about anarcho-christian we're talking about a new synthesis of that's the, interesting it is interesting yeah. let's talk about that um, yeah it, like I would say that what pulled me away from Christianity is what am I trying to say here? What pulled me away from it was 
my belief that I had to believe, and you know, I know that there are people who still believe this way, and that's fine. Believe what you want to. I, I don't. I'm not mad at you at this point, but. I will never be able to believe the Bible the way that, like, my mom or grandma believe the Bible. Right, yep. Um, it's, I just don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. And if, see, that's why I do kind of wrestle, like, I want to have community, and I'm willing to have that be religious community. Uh, I just, like, fear that they won't accept me because I don't believe the same way mm, that they do. I completely understand this conversation is one we should have Josh Hamilton join on, by the way. Uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to do that uh, yeah, at some cool. point. Um, but I feel exactly the same way. And I've been surprised about the people in my life who have been receptive and open to that that I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Like my mom, she's not open to it. Her mom, open to it. Really? Yes. So I'm, so I'm I have these conversations with my grandma, you know, and th th some of these conversations go back to when I was a teenager. Where I would be asking her questions that my mom would be like blasphemy, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, why are you even asking these questions? You're just you know, muddling, muddling, muddying up your soul. Don't do it. And, and and my grandma would have those conversations and hear me out and like yeah. talk to me. That surprised me. So yeah. you might be surprised, man. Well, what is a better way to bring somebody in to like talk to them honestly and like give them your honest thoughts about and, and your honest thoughts and answers to their questions or to be like don't talk about that <laughs> you know i don't know it just like seems counterintuitive to me if you if you want people to be a part of what you're a part of and like part of your duty as the title that you take is to evangelize and bring people yeah. you know you know what i think it what i think it boils down to well maybe two things one thing is that like some people don't know they don't know the bible and they don't know the religion as well as they need to 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 answer questions about it like even basic questions about it that that they because it's easier to just swallow the pill and believe everything that's handed to you especially when your mom and dad and grandparents tell you this this is the truth it, it's way easier to accept that and not have to think about it um, and that, it, like, so I think that's probably part of what, like, my mom and maybe even my sister to some degree, um, that how they accept, you know, their Christian heritage just kind of blindly, where I always ask questions. And, uh, you know, yeah. it, but it's just, it's hard work to answer those questions. For sure. And I don't think, I don't think, like, my, my mom was, was willing to do that or, or, you know, I guess, I guess that's the, go ahead. Oh, no, you're good. So something that I, Another thing that I kind of had a like a back and forth on and my belief on it is when I was younger and somebody would say, you just have to take it on faith. Yeah. I would be like, fuck, fuck you. you. <laughs> like, you, what are you talking about? Show me how, why I'm supposed to believe this. Uh, and now that is not how I feel. Now I feel like sometimes you just have to take things on faith. Um, well, you know, that's connected to like... Um Oh, uh, you know what? We're gonna have to we're gonna have to save this topic for uh, for a, a little bit later in the conversation. Okay. So, um, anarcho Christian, anarcho Christian. So, what? Tell me about this. What kind of shit have you been exposed to? Oh, what does it really mean? I see. That's what I'm. I'm like trying to. There's that one podcast, um, the Anarchist Bible Study. You should listen to that, man. I think you would be interested in it. Um, they start out, and I don't know if they've gotten beyond this book or not, but they start out talking about the book of revelation and all of the, um, 
the implications or not the implications they're basically they're um pointing out connections between things in revelation and like relationships to the state and you know rulers and whatnot interesting um so that's a good one i haven't gotten too deep into that one because i just don't have that much time to listen to stuff anymore like it's a it sucks because that's like my favorite form of entertainment is listening to podcasts and i just hopefully now that i have this new job once i get the job more and i'm more comfortable in it i'll i can like listen to things while i'm working but right now i I need to give 100 percent concentration to the work i I agree i think that's exactly how it's going to play out for you yeah at some point you'll be you'll have learned the job well enough that you'll be able to have a little bit more free time in the meantime you just got to strap in man buckle down strap in and buckle down well even if i don't have free time like a lot of the times when I was working at my previous job, I would just be listening to something while I do something right. because it's like I know what I'm doing. And I, and that job wasn't that like, you know, mentally strenuous. It was more of a physically strenuous job. Um, but this job, it's like I need to pay attention to details. And if I fuck up, I'm going to cost them money, yes. you know? Yep. So, yeah, I just got to pay attention. That's a whole different kind of responsibility. That's yep. good, man. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. It's, it, uh, I feel, I don't know, like a grown up. you know, like, it's just like, I got the, I got a job and somebody, uh, is like trusting me with a pretty big responsibility. Yeah, so. that's, that's awesome. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Yeah. And you got to rise like Jordan Peterson would say, man, you got to rise to the occasion. But anyways, back to, uh, that, that anarchist Bible study. That's yep. a good, so uh, that's the. The one thing that I think I want to like dig into more as far as a resource, like a collected resource, because it's not, it's kind of like there are a bunch of anarcho Christian type people who tweet, but they tweet like a bunch of other stuff too. It's not like it's constantly so, um, it's not like it's constantly about anarcho Christian stuff. They're tweeting about other things all the time. So it's hard to get like a collected, um, you know, yeah, like body of work on what the anarcho-christian ideology is and there's, i imagine there's a, a diversity of opinions sure I, yeah 100 percent. so so this is what comes to my mind and you tell me if this if this is part of it or or you know or what you think of this you know how there's these people um they're, mo- they're mostly they're mostly communist communist type people uh who say that jesus was a communist yeah <clears throat> and they say that there's proof of that in the fact that he said give all your possessions away and follow me to his to his uh, d- disciples so he's like hey we, we you know we don't want property and we're going to have <clears throat> we're going to take care of each other and everything everything in common and that's how they perceive the way that they lived that the Jesus and his apostles lived and so there's these there's these Christian communist type people that think if you're a Christian you should do as Jesus did and that means give all your property away and you know that that kind of thing and i think you they're reading into that a little bit more than than is is reasonable sure but this idea of anarcho christian uh it, that kind of sounds very similar it sounds like if you don't have you don't recognize a state authority which is what an anarchist it does there's no there's no central authority then you are responsible for taking care of each other because big brother's not taking care of you Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is in both of those perspectives, looking at Jesus and his apostles either as a communist or as an anarchist, those to me seem like total polar opposite sides of the spectrum politically. Yeah. But in both situ- in both cases, you're interpreting that, you know, reasonably as far as I'm concerned. You know, whether whether Jesus was an anarchist or, or whether he was a communist. Yeah. You know, it kind of seems like it could be either. Well, there's crossover, you know, there is anarcho-communism and I kind of 
that's another thing. Like we were talking about my back and forth with religion. Um, you know, I kind of grew up politically as one of these communism bad people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I do still think that like state communism is a fucking disaster every single time. Correct. Uh, so I, I still do hate communism on one level, but on another level, Back then, I would hear anarcho-communism, and I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense, you know? It doesn't seem to, yeah. Uh, but what am I, when I talk about, like, small communities taking care of each other, what am I talking about? Like, I'm kind of talking about a little commune, you know? You, you are. I think, I think the difference there is whether, <clears throat> whether in, an anar in an anarchic system, there is no central authority, and in a, in a communist system... And it seems like philosophically it should be every it should sort of be the same, but it's not. It's there's a central authority. Mm -hmm. So the difference is no authority versus one authority, and in, you know, I mean, I, I, and the difference seems to be very important because not that an anarchist system has necessarily been tried, but when they do that, when a communist system, it fails, and it fails because because a central authority is corruptible, and a central authority cannot account for everything they need to account for. There's they're they're too limited. You need to you need to you know, utilize more resources than just one tyrant. And that's what communism breaks down to. Yeah. I mean, I think so too, but I think that is when you have a non-voluntary commune, like a, a non-voluntary commune, you know, a, a commune where everybody is under threat of violence, forced to be a part of it. Um, I think the idea of like a small community, taking care of one another um like the central force in that is not force uh like government force state force the central force is need you know it's almost like a a free market form of communism i mean you know um so, so if, <clears throat> if if under both of these situations you've got a small group of people that are responsible to each other taking care of each other and one person has no food <clears throat> and an anarchic system the community would give that person food out of the kindness of their heart voluntarily. Mm -hmm. And a communist system, it's taken from somebody and given to that person. That, I think, is the difference. Yeah. And I think also the nature of completely free markets would mean that that person who doesn't have a job would have a lot more opportunity to get some kind of work, whether it's like what they're trained in or specialize in or not. It's like, are you starving? Well, we can find you some work. You know, there's like tons of shit going on here. So, you know, I think that that's true on some level yeah, too. Yeah. It's interesting. I never really considered how close the idea of communism is to anarchy. That's an interesting comparison, but I do think that the difference is force. It's yep. the difference is force Yep. and in, in anarchy it would be voluntary. Um, you know, but not obligatory though. So it's like, if all the people in the community decided the person who didn't have food is an asshole and <laughs> decided not to give him food, then he just dies. You better be fucking nice to people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And in, but in a communist system, they're gonna they're gonna take it from everyone else to give to you, and uh, whether no you big know, deal, no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, man. Interesting. That is interesting. Hmm. I also agree with you about being like anti-communist. Uh, deep down to the core, mm -hmm. 
for propaganda reasons. Like sure. we, I grew up in it, and it, it's like I can't exactly remove it from my personality anymore. It's like, like you said, commun- communism bad, Russia bad. <laughs> Luckily, though, that's one of the ones where the propaganda was like, even if it wasn't for the right reasons, like, okay, you led me to the right conclusion. You know, like oh, communism yeah. fucking sucks. <laughs> State-sponsored communism is, like I said, a nightmare every single time. Agreed. So, Agreed. Yeah, whether they led me there for completely, uh, I want to say altruistic, but Ayn Rand makes me not like that word. But it, whether they led me there for good reasons or not, it was, thank you for making me hate communism, mm. that one. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you remember um, there, was a, so there was a podcast, I can't remember how long ago it was, but you brought up the term pandeism. Yeah. And then, and then later on you recommended a, a fo- I follow a, a pandeism uh, Twitter account. Yeah. And so I, uh, I, I kind of brushed that off when we first brought that up because I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of it, and you know, it's it's just like these other ideas um, that are similar, like acosmism and pantheism, which which was the uh, uh, Spinoza episode we did. That was that was the pantheist guy, yeah, and um, uh, panpsychism, which is the, the one of those physics um, you know, yeah. ph- philosophical schools. They're all kind of the same. And I looked up, I finally looked up on Wikipedia what. They, how they define pandeism, and apparently there's different schools like there always is. People, fracture, but just so so you know, the, on the surface, pan means all. It, pan means all, and deism means God. You know, so God is everything. That's yeah. what, that's what that means, and uh, you know, I like that. And you and you knew I would like that. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, recommended for sure. that for me, and uh, and pan pantheism um, that also means uh, everything is God. That's the Spinoza stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I looked up the definition in Wikipedia about pandeism, it said something like this: that the that the cosmology, that the, the creation story, if you believe that sort of philosophy, goes something like this: that God was all there is, whatever whatever that is. That God turned Himself and He became the universe, and that He. he Transformed it, itself into the universe, and so it, it no longer exists. It became the universe. God no longer is a thing because He transformed Himself into the universe. Now He's this. Now He's the universe. And so, part of that I like, and part of that I don't like. So I just thought I would tell you, since uh, I'm sorry, I'm inj- interjecting this in this random part of the conversation, <laughs> but I wrote it down um, that I do believe whatever God is turned itself into the universe. I do believe that. Yeah. Because I believe the substance of the universe and you and I is the same thing as whatever God is. Whatever that means, it's all fucking very clear as mud. <laughs> but uh, what I don't believe is that God disappeared in the process. What I believe is that we, okay. we are all God. Right? Yeah. So, so it's not that God transformed himself into the universe and is, is now gone. Like, you know, but it's that He's still, you know, whatever God is, whatever that thing is, it's still present in what it is. It's just transform. It's just like an ice, like water freezing into an ice cube. It's just a different form. It's still there. It hasn't gone away. So that's my only objection to pandeism. So is that idea in pandeism that God no longer exists, or is it kind of phrased in a way that means that God is not like intervening? So that's good. Um, I think more of the former. I'll read okay. it though. But it's interesting you bring that up because uh, there's lots of these primitive religions, like mostly in Africa that I've read about, sub-Saharan Africa, tribal religions, and they have a creator god. And it's like many of these religions, and they don't pray to the to the creator god. They don't talk, tell stories about them, myths about them. They, um, you know, 
they know his name, but nobody talks about him. They don't sacrifice to him. It's like, you know, why? Because he's not here anymore. So we don't, we don't have to pray to him. Why would we pray to him? He's not here anymore. So it's, uh, there, there's a bunch of religions that believe that sort of thing, which is interesting. Um, but here we go, pandeism. So the wiki on pandeism says, it's a theological doctrine which combines aspects of pantheism into deism and holds that the creator deity became the universe and ceased to exist as a separate and conscious entity. Uh, has, so that, that's basically it. Ceases to exist as a separate and conscious entity. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it ceases to exist. It means it ceases to exist as a separate and conscious entity. I think that's kind of like right in line with what you believe. See, I don't believe that God is a conscious entity. Okay. I, I, I believe that God is the unconscious. It's the, it's the part of our reality that we don't have access to. That's what I believe. I don't believe hmm. God has a name or a form. Or, you know, it's just potential. It's just that Terminator Two substance that we that I've brought up okay. several several times. Okay. Um, and I, I don't I don't understand it very well myself. It's like I'm guided by this intuition from from the mystic experience that tells me in my this is where it gets hippie and weird. And I never, as a younger man, would have said something like this. It's when an idea comes to me that resonates with me that makes my fucking soul sing. I feel that. I'm like, oh, that's so, there's something about that that's real. There's something about that that's true. And I feel it like an intuition. Yeah. And that's a weird fucking thing to say. I never, I never believed in intuition until, I, until like the last several years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's, a way, it's a way for me distinguishing. It's just like another sense. It's like a way for me to distinguish the truth of something. I don't know. That's as, as far as I can go with it. But Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I definitely... Get what you mean on some level, because like I said, I've, I've come around on the idea that some things you just have to take on faith. Mm. So, so let me ask you this question: um, If you if you have kids, do you will you raise them in the church like you were raised? Do you think? Um, I would raise them going to church, and yes, I would raise them in the church, but uh, I would. I'm never going to hand my kids over to any but any entity, community or otherwise, and let them raise my kids for me. Um, you know, that's a huge, huge problem that I have with public schools. It's like, how do people who are on the right or people who believe in liberty and not being completely devoted to the state, how do you expect to build a better civilization or a better community when you ship your children off to be educated by people who hate you? Mm. By people who think that you're racists or yeah. whatever the fuck. At a bare minimum, people who you don't know what they believe and what they're going to teach your kids. Because as a parent, how do you even know that? Yeah. And we're not doing that hard work anyway. We're just we're just trusting that yep. that's going to be fine. Yep. You know, Jesus. That's you hear about that teacher who got? Uh, you know that that group Project Veritas. They have gotten a bunch of big like leaks and stuff. Yep. Um, James O'Keefe, I think, is the guy. But. Um, did you hear about that? The no, teacher? No, no, don't there was tell some me. teacher, like, I don't know where it was. He was a teacher of, like, fairly young kids, and he had, like, one of those anti fascist action flags up mm. in the classroom. And somebody asked him what the flag was, and he, like, basically, I guess, like, kind of bullied these kids who were, like, who, like, spoke up against it or something. You know, uh, it's fucked up, man. These are the people that are raising, raising your kids for you. Uh, but, to go back to the church thing, it, I think the church is better because at least then 
there's some kind of choice. It's like you are choosing to associate yourself mm. with these people. Yep, yep. Uh, so that's good. But even so, I like I said, I'll never just hand my kids over and let them be brainwashed. I'm going to talk to them about the things that they're being taught. And if I have a problem with it, I will v- like have a conversation with them about it. So you know what's re- you know what's hard about this that you, you don't know yet, but hopefully one day you'll know, is that it's hard to talk to your kids and tell them things that you that you think they should know or that would help them in a way that they understand. Because sure. because at different ages, it's very hard to know how do you how do you tell them something where they'll understand what's important because you know they can't quite grasp it all, mm-hmm. and it's way harder than I anticipated. Yeah, and I and I always wondered, and I talked we talked about this, like why did why do the adults in my life, why did my mom and dad not warn me about the shit that was going to happen to me, that was going to be traumatic, that everyone goes through as they get older, you know, like nobody warned me about everything that fucking puberty was going to bring and heartbreak. Nobody nobody warned me about what was going to happen when I had to choose a career path. I had to get rid of all. I had to throw away all my other options and 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 you know go with one of them. Nobody told me about that you know, that sort of psychological death that was going to happen to me when I, when I changed my like career path that from my, you know, from my, uh, without going into details with what I wanted to do, I had to give up. There's all sorts of things. And then seeing your parents start to get sick and die. Nobody fucking warns you about these things in a way that would like help maybe. And maybe that's impossible, but my, my mom and dad never once opened their mouth and said, Hey, this is something that's going to happen. You know, this is, this is, you know, how you prepare for it. This is how I dealt with it. No, they didn't. And I, I think it's because how do you know how to tell it to me when I'm 12? How do you know how to tell that to me when I'm 18? You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think um, what I imagine the solution to that would be, because I don't know, I don't have kids, but um, is just talking to them continuously, like as they're going through the things, be, you know, to... Or even if they're not going through it, even if they're, like, exposed to it through somebody else. Like, when you, like, what am I trying to say? If you have kids and your parents die, that's the perfect time to, like, instruct them through. And you don't even have to do it through a conversation. I mean, a lot of the time, the kids are going to learn through how you behave, you know? That's very true. So, I don't know. But again, this is just me spitballing this because I don't have fucking kids. I have no idea. Yeah, well, it, and I don't want to be insulting to people who do have kids, you know. I'm just telling you, man, it's harder than you think, and so you. I'm sure so, it is. So, you know, if your kid is at school getting indoctrinated, and you get catch wind of it, and then you have to explain to your kid, it's just like, it's just like explaining to your kid what racism is, and like going back to to what Morgan Freeman said. There's a part of me that that says, don't explain to your kid what racism is. Yeah, don't put that idea in their head. Don't talk about it, you know? Um, and then you have to decide. Do you tell them? And how, what do you say? What do you fucking say? How do you, how do you, you know, you know what I mean? It's way harder than you imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then the, and then the question about, like, God and religion and, uh, you know, the first time your kid meets somebody that belongs to another religion and you have to have that conversation, it's like, how do you do that? When they're when they're ten years old or twelve years old or something, so I don't know, man. It's uh that's been a surprise to me is how hard that is. And you know what it makes me wonder about? Is that all? You know how like part of the what pulled I think what pulled you away from religion and what pulls a lot of people away from organized religion is the stories 
are bullshit. Mm. It's like these are fantastic stories, these myths. They're obviously not real. People don't people don't raise from the dead. People don't turn water into wine. You know, pe- there's no such thing as dragons. People don't slay dragons. You know, all these stories that come from our myths that we you know, we say, Oh, these are all Aesop's fables, they're children's stories. And then somebody like Jordan Peterson steps in and says, Yeah, oh yeah, they are children's stories. But look at all the meaning underneath the, the stories. Yeah. It's like maybe that's how we tell our kids. We put it in a way that a child would understand. And we implant in these stories all sorts of meaning that they can slowly uncover as they mature. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't realize that, that, that there's something to uncover. And those are the people that remain atheists. Those are the people that never appreciate the value of religion because they, they don't ever realize that there's, that there's gold under, in them, their hills. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, I think that that's true. I think uh, back when in my, like, uh, what's the word? I'm, like militant atheist, you know, like f- I, I just fucking hated everyone who was Christian or not even Christian, religious in general. Oh, yeah. Um, Sheep. Yeah, exactly. Um, back in that phase, it, I did. I think I thought I knew everything, you know, uh, and I just had experiences since that make me realize I don't I have no idea. So, yep. And that's just going to keep happening to you, man. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. nobody warns you about that either. That's that maniacal arrogance thing. People just think once you once you're competent enough that you you haven't really bumped into many, many obstacles you couldn't get over. You just believe you know it all. Yeah. Then you step into the deep end and you're like, "Fuck!" Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I don't know. I think what pulled me away from Christianity was definitely that, and it was. I think I'm the type of person who, if I was raised atheist, I might have been drawn towards Christianity in that like time of my life. That's you know, it. that's interesting. So I think you're probably right. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the appeal of Christianity in the beginning. It was a fringe religion. Yeah, you know, it was, it was people were practicing it in their basements in secret. That's the kind of shit people want to teenagers want to partake in. Sign me up. We're gonna drink wine and pretend we're eating flesh and, and drinking blood of a god. Fuck yeah, sign me up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it was countercultural, people. We, listen, Catholic Church, pay attention. If, Christ, if Christianity were countercultural, it would be flourishing. Figure out a way to make it countercultural. You know how you're not gonna do that. With this fucking pope, this fucking let's do everything the way the culture is going, progressive ass pope. Yep. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. <laughs> and all the corporations that are doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. Fuck you guys too. Where are the Ford Motor Companies? Like, like during the during the two thousand eight. Oh, during what? During when the bailouts happened and all the automotive companies were getting billions oh, yeah. of dollars from the U.S. government because yeah. they were too big to fail, and Ford was like, "I don't want your money, Uncle Sam. I'm doing this myself." Like Ayn Rand. Fuck yeah, Ford. Where is Ford? Where is the Ford Motor Companies today? Where all of them are bowing down. They're all bowing down. And you know it's related to money. Yeah. Because because you are going to disenfranchise half of your customers. Because half of the world is conservative. If you're willing to disenfranchise half of your customers, it's because the government is is making it worth your motherfucking while. Yep. Golly, man. It's fucked up. Um, no love for corporations over here. Uh, at least corporations that would do that. Shout out to Ford Motor Company. Yeah, shout out to Ford Motor Company. That's a company with some history of, you know, doing awesome shit. 
entrepreneurship, man. Yeah. I, I'm so impressed by that. Yep. Um, oh, man. I don't know, but let's talk about... I told the audience on my episode on Wednesday, which I, you probably haven't listened to, and I'm trying to think. I think it was Plato. I think I tried to do one on Plato. I got a couple in the Yeah, in the yeah. Works. I did listen to part of it. Um, but I said on the episode that we had something special planned for today, yeah. and you and I instead are doing shooting the shit kind of episode so let's, yeah. let's talk about what was supposed to happen and what didn't we happen. were supposed to have this is the second time this has happened we were supposed to have well this time is a little bit worse i think because the first time it was never really committed to there was never any time or date committed to uh so the fact that he this person just stopped replying whatever at least we weren't committed uh, i still think it's kind of shitty but uh, whatever. I, I really don't hold a grudge. These are busy people, like especially the first one. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like I, I shouldn't say that. Um, but they're both busy people. We'll put it that way. Right. Um, so I, I don't even care if like you send me a message and you're like, hey, man, uh, I know we said we would do this at this time. But like even if it's like I got like a, a big guest opportunity on my podcast and I can't turn it down. So, you know, I'm sorry. I have to cancel. That's fine. Absolutely. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. This is a stupid little podcast. Uh, but say something. Yeah. You know, don't just like ghost somebody like they're like an awkward Tinder hookup. You just never fucking yeah. talk to them again. You know, it's funny you put it that way because uh because in my in my other in my professional uh career, you know, like in my other non-podcast part of my life, one of the complaints that I get the most from the people I work with is that is that People don't do the simplest things like getting an email from somebody asking them a question and just saying, like, like I can't get to it today. Just saying, hey, I'm, I've got your email. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you in 24 hours or I'll get back to you by the end of the week or whatever. Just let somebody know, I, I heard you. I'm working on it. I'll get back to you. Yeah. People don't do that. That's how, that's how fucking lazy and socially awkward all of these up-and-coming people are. They just, they just won't do that, you yeah. know? And I, I feel like a curmudgeon pointing at like a younger generations and that their obvious flaws, which, which are really just the differences from my generation. But I'm talking about a lot of these people that are 10 years younger than me. They're yeah. early professionals that came from a different school than I did, that don't have the work ethic that I have, that, 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 that didn't grow up going to school dances and writing notes back and forth with people. They grew up not talking to and looking into each other's eyes and instead texting one another. And, uh, you know, it's a different type of human being. And they are super intimidated to pick up the phone and have a conversation. And they are, they are unwilling to put in minimal amounts of effort just to show some communication with, with, with people because, because they avoid any, any absolutely unnecessary social interactions. Mm -hmm. It's like, if it's not, if it's not necessary, I'm not going to do it. You know, I don't know what it is, but I just think it's a funny parallel. I actually, I have, I have some of that in, in myself. Uh, I do too. Yeah, I so, do too. But you like, it's just, you have to be courteous to like, especially when they're people that you are going to be communicating with and like interacting with. Why would you like make your interactions with them awkward or like, you know, make them not, like you, you know what I mean. I think it's that those. I think it's that those people don't realize that they're do, that. That's the impression it's it's okay. leaving. It's like, look, I feel like I'm hanging out there in, in space. I don't know whether you've even heard me, and they're just like, hey, you know, I'm working on it. I don't have anything for you yet. I'll I'll get back to you when I have something for you. Yeah, you know. 
So anyway, it's just like a lack of courtesy, a lack of a base, a basic understanding of, you know, communication and human fucking, you know, uh, emotions. Yeah. Like we're we're going to feel like, you know, we're being ignored, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I got to work on, I got to do better at that at this new job. I got to like, I don't think I'm bad at that particularly. Uh, I think that I'm always like, I'm good with communication with people. Like I, I just... I try to make people know that I'm paying attention to them. Uh, So, but I I would like to be better at it. You know, talking about, talking about it makes you like, yeah, we could all use some improvement. The best way to do it is practice, man. Just dump, jump in into the deep end. And one thing I'll tell you that surprised me is that in this day and age of uh, virtual communication, we're, we're all doing emails and fucking, you know, all of our communications really not, you know, interpersonal anymore. Um, how many people appreciate a phone call? Oh, yeah. And you'll find that particularly useful if it's something that you don't want to have a record of. Oh, okay. Pick up the phone and have a conversation. Yeah. And there's no email record of it. You know, you'd be surprised how often that comes in handy and how often people appreciate that. So I just, I've just learned that in the last few years, so I'm just saying. Sweet. <laughs> All That's right. good to know. All right. Um, I mean, AT&T could probably pull it up on you, but... Uh, yeah. But, you know, or not AT&T, the NSA. Oh, they've got transcriptions of all of everyone's phone calls. Yeah, I believe that to be true. (laughs) Uh, I think some people think that's some Alex Jones conspiracy shit, but I 100% believe that to be true. All all I would need to know is how much information is that? And mm -hmm. what kind of servers would you need to store it? Mm -hmm. And is is that a possibility? Because that's what I'm wondering. Is it a technological... With the amount of phone calls and text messages and instant messages and stuff that we're creating every day, every hour in this country, is it even possible to hold all that fucking information? It must be, but I think it is possible. Um, I don't know if they do. Here's my thought. I don't know if they do save everything. You think about things like algorithms and shit like that. I mean, they could probably have some kind of machine learning software analyze all of these conversations and get rid of anything that isn't relevant. That's, you know? that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So just in real time, scanning all of them and you're only storing the ones that are suspect, and yeah. but everything else just passes through the filter. That's interesting. Um, but again, this is very conspiratorial. I have no, <laughs> I have no evidence for any of this, but well, hold on, pump the brakes. Um, we're getting off track cause we started talking about, um, People who were supposed to come on the podcast that that you know for one reason or another weren't able to do that, yeah. and maybe uh, they still will. We'll see. Well, that would be cool. Um, and to be honest, I was pre- I was prepared for that episode, not necessarily for this one. So yeah. you know, if we're jumping all over the place, it's because uh, we weren't prepared. That's all right. All right. Um, um, what else do we got to talk? Well, about we had then? we had that. Uh, well, part of what I was hoping we would be able to talk about with the guest today was, and it was just coincidental, but in timing. Was that Jordan Peterson did that um, did that episode with what's his name uh, the fucking man, the man Bob Murphy yeah Dr Robert Murphy of the Mises Institute among mm-hmm. other things um, so a couple things I want to talk about that conversation a little bit um, I also thought I would I think it's interesting that I never heard of Mises and you brought that to my attention um, you did I mean I didn't hear from anybody else yeah but I did I did encounter Hayek. And I did, oh, in, yeah. and I did encounter um, who was Friedman. Free, yeah, Milton Friedman and, yeah. and Friedrich Hayek. I encountered both of them mainly because of my the, my libertarian friend Dave, who introduced me to this, you know, way back when. Um, but never, never Mises. Was it Dave Smith? No. Oh damn, Dave Dave Puddin Howell. <laughs> All right. Puddin, Puddin. Yeah, that's funny as hell. 
so anyway, um, and and so Von Mises I never heard of. Robert Murphy I never heard of. So this was my first introduction to him. And if anybody's interested, this is uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast, season four, episode forty three. It's a good one. What did you think of it? Uh, I loved it. I you know Jordan Peterson. I I I think most people who know anything about me or anything about you know Mises or Bob Murphy know that I'm like I vibe with the, that type of shit. I love like that kind of like free market shit. I love it. Yep. Uh, and Jordan Peterson does this thing where he took those biblical stories and he's like, these are these stories, but here's all the way that you can apply them to like real life. Um, and I feel like he kind of does that with everything because they were talking about these economic ideas and he's like talking about, uh, and that's, that is kind of the beauty of Mises though, is it's not just about like a capitalism market. It's about personal interaction mm. markets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and just Jordan Peterson was the perfect person to have a, like that, you know, back and forth, that communication mm. was great. It, it, it was, I, I noticed Jordan was seemed genuinely interested. Was asking mm-hmm. questions that weren't prepared, but were co- occurring to him. Like they were having a conversation where they were really trying to understand one another, and that's great. It's great for people who who are being introduced to those ideas to listen to the conversation like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that they were both, you know, uh, they know what they're talking about. It was like a high level conversation. It wasn't like an introductory mm-hmm. course, but it was a genuine conversation, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. What I thought was more interesting was that Jordan Peterson was interested in this at all because such a focus of it is on economics. And I just, you know, I, I knew that those sorts of ideas were, were co- consistent with his other ideas because he talks so much about the importance of, um, of the individual and the sacredness of the individual, what that means in terms of government. And Jordan has talked about that to some degree because of totalitarianism. And how that's that's what happens when you don't have the proper value on the individual. So, looking at these this economic philosophy that's also centered around the individual, I can I can understand Jordan is probably going to like that. But I didn't expect him to want to get into this whole other area. Yeah. Well, I think part of what makes I, I would assume that part of what makes Jordan interested is like what I was talking about the fact that it's not just this like boring capitalism like trading money around it's like personal interaction mm. like that's what it's about on, on i think at its deepest level it's not about like shifting money around it's about how you interact with people and that is like jordan peterson you know? oh, oh for sure well he's a psychologist um for sure um i had something and i lost it yeah happens to the best of them it happens um so what what was interesting about that conversation to me, the most interesting part of that conversation, was this sort of, um, there's this there's this statement, there's like a dichotomy where you can look at a communist perspective, which is what I would consider one far side of the spectrum in terms of the economic spectrum, and then on the other side, you know, like a perfect freedom and free market uh, on the other side of the spectrum, and that there's a, a phrase that you can use that goes along with each of these, and one of them is taxation is theft, mm-hmm. and that's something that you would say on the far right side of the spectrum if you believed in things like property, and you know, the Constitution is designed to protect life, liberty, and property. That's what that's what we're about. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, it's um, property is theft. So we have taxation is theft on one side and property is theft on the other side. And they had this conversation and it was really fucking interesting. Yeah. 
it was interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people that I kind of like as libertarians have moved a, a little bit away from the taxation is theft thing uh, because it's kind of just like a a slogan at this point uh, for a lot of libertarians. Yep. Um, I do think that taxation is more um, comparable to coercion. It's like you pay us or we're going to make your life difficult. We're going to fuck you up, you know? But see, I think that is that is how it's theft. Yeah, yeah. Because, right. it, because it's not voluntary. Yeah. So if somebody takes something from you and it's not voluntary, that is the definition of theft. Yeah. So taxation is theft. And I know it's a slogan and it doesn't mean as much because everyone says it and, you know, it just loses some of its punch. Yeah. But it is the fucking truth. Yep. Taxation uh, is theft because I, I don't have a choice. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but property is not theft. Uh, I don't believe, and I think Bob did a great job of kind of dismantling that. So let's so let's talk about let's talk about this. I'm, I'll try to outline this taxation is theft idea and the property is theft idea, uh, and then you can you can jump in where you want. So the sure. the idea of uh, taxation is theft. We've kind of done a pretty good job of this so far, but the idea is um, we're supposed to have this thing called property because our our philosophy that that governs our nation. Uh, recognizes individual uh, the individual, so um, so there's a, there's a, such a thing called property that in, it, individuals can have. And, well, I'll use an example. In Canada, in Canada, you don't you don't own the land in Canada. You just lease it, and so I don't really here either. Well, that's that's exactly my. I'm getting okay, there. I'm I getting it, there. I got it. So in Canada, in Canada, you can't own you can't own land. You can own the house, but you can't own the land that the house is sitting on. Um, you can lease it from the government. I think those leases are long-term, like 90-year leases or 100-year leases or whatever it is. Whatever, that's fine. But you're paying the government every month to, ha to have the privilege of having your house on their land. And then we like to think in the United States that that's not the case. Those fucking socialists. <laughs> in the United States, you, you can buy a piece of property and you can own it. Well, that's true, but... If you don't pay your property taxes every month, the government will come and take it back. So it's not true. So you can buy it, but you have to continue to buy it for every month for the rest of your life. And if you stop paying, they're going to come and take it from you. Yeah. So um, so there, there's definitely this idea uh, of property, but, but I think it's a very cloudy thing and people don't understand it very well. We really don't have that right in the United States either to, to, own, to own land. But the idea is that if you that if you um, that if you own something and you pay you pay taxes on that thing, uh, if that's not a voluntary interaction, then by definition that's that's theft. Yes, indeed. The idea of uh, property as theft is more of a communist idea, and this is the way I want to describe it because I think this is an interesting way. Um, so I grew up uh, hunting a little bit, and my dad uh, was a hunter. So you go out and you hunt deer, and the deer belong to no one and everyone. They're a public good somehow. These deer are running around. They don't belong to anybody. But if they come across my crosshairs, I can shoot it. It becomes my deer. Mm -hmm. So there's this weird thing with like natural resources. And, and I think that's, that's what illustrates this argument best. It's like if you put ourselves back in this primitive state like the Stone Age and all the land is you can go wherever you want and, you know, all the land is there for everybody, you know, to, to go and explore and whatever you find is yours kind of thing. It's like, you know, there's nobody telling you what you can and can't do. In a situation like that, who owns the land? 
So that's the question. In, a, in our original situation, before somebody planted a flag and said, mine, and I'm going to kill anybody who wants to take it from me, until that happened, who owns the land and who owns the natural resources? The answer is sort of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's also sort of nobody. Yep. And so the idea that I could walk onto that land and plant a flag and say, mine, you can understand that if the, if the land belongs to everyone and I've just claimed it as mine, what have I done? I've stolen this land from everybody else. That's the idea of property as theft. Okay, so we've kind of outlined both. Um, and how did, how, I don't know if you want to take this idea, how did, how did Bob make this, make this argument to Jordan? In the most simple way ever. It's just how do you steal something from somebody if they never owned it? If they didn't own something, how, do you, how is it theft? Ba, ba, ba. That's it. There's the Achilles heel in the communist argument is yeah. um, property rights are required for theft to even be a concept. So I have to own something in order for it to be able to be stolen from me. And if I'm a communist and I don't believe that property is a thing, guess what, motherfucker? Theft isn't a thing either. Yeah. And that's the world we're living in now. In California, I was just talking to my grandpa. In California, you can go into a store, you can steal $999 worth of shit. I don't know what it is, but as long as you don't go over that threshold, you haven't committed a crime. They can't even, like, talk to you. Like, they can't even, you know, you just pick it up, walk right out the front door. So it kind of sounds like, you know, the stores don't own those things, you know? Yeah. Just everybody owns them. You can just go in there and take them. It's crazy. It's communist utopia of California. Yeah. The way that you laid that out was interesting to me because... It kind of reminded me of something that I actually do kind of feel to be true. And it's that in a truly anarchist society, you own what you can hold. You know what I mean? And I think that there's truth in that. I think that in reality, without the the intervention of the state, there is some fucking truth in that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like the idea... A lot of people talk about how the idea that... Um, like being a landlord, you know, that's a big thing in communism is fuck landlords. Um, and there are some people that I like who, who kind of agree. And honestly, I don't agree, but I kind of see where they're coming from. Um, I think that people own being able to own property that they can't necessarily hold themselves is fine because I do think that that creates opportunity for, for people who can't buy a house Mm. for people, you know, um, Mm. They might have legitimate arguments against that, though. Like, like it would be easier for them to buy houses if these people weren't, like, stacking up properties, you know? I don't know if there's any truth to that. But uh, I, do, I do think that there's some truth in you own, you own what you can, you can make sure that you keep. Mm. That's interesting because it, because it requires an investment. So it's like if I, if I want to secure this to be my land or whatever— I have to build a wall around it. I have to, you know, defend it. I have to. You so, have to. You certainly have to be willing to. So there, there is a exactly. So there is a price to pay. It's like, in, in a sense, you're purchasing it by by using your time and resources to, to you know, defend it and create the borders and claim it mm-hmm. to make it your own. And that that's that's not something that is free. It, it you know, it requires some some price. So that's interesting. That's an, and, and you can kind of see that, like, in the old days in the Wild West when people would go and claim the free land out in Oklahoma that, you know, the government was trying to get people to settle, the, you know, all the way through to the other ocean. So it's like, let's get these people to come to Oklahoma and settle there. And there's no, you know, there's, like, hostile Indians and there's, like, no, nothing, you know, no, no infrastructure. Sure. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna 
give you this land for free. Yeah. But it's not free. Yeah. They, they had to they had to buy all the supplies, they had to get on the wagons, they had to ride halfway across the country in this super dangerous trip that m- most of them died on the way and it was a it, there was a price to pay yep. for that land. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's like if the land is everybody's and nobody's, whoever whoever pays the necessary price gets the benefit of that being their property. Yeah. It's an interesting it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I like it. Uh, I think it makes sense. I think that um like I think that scares a lot of people, like the idea of the Wild West, you know? Yeah. Um, although I've heard some interesting arguments that the Wild West was not as bad as people make it seem. That that's, that's like interesting. some kind of propaganda. Um of course and of course I think that. But uh <laughs> uh I also think that that like the state offers people some kind of an idea that that's not going to happen. You know, people believe that the state is preventing people from, you know, roving bands of marauders from coming and taking your shit. You know, that's an idea that people have, which is sometimes true. But on other times, the state is the band of roving marauders. God damn right. So, so. It's true on some level, I guess, but really at the end of the day, it's not. And if the state decides that they're on the side of the roving marauders, then fuck you, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, Whereas if you take it on yourself to, like, maybe they'll get it, but I'm going to kill as many of them as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't think that, you know, I think that that idea, while I think that it's good on some level, it scares a lot of people, and I understand that. I think that people need to understand that there are other ways to achieve what we have the illusion of now that the state is protecting you. There are ways to actually do that in real life Mm. in that scenario where you own what you can hold. There are ways to where you'll be safe. You know, we can organize things in a way that there will still be safe communities. Um, And I don't really even think it would be that hard to be honest with you. So that's interesting. What comes to my mind is like what you say about, the idea of scaring some people it, it and what comes to my mind is the idea that if i whatever i can hold i can keep mm-hmm. um it means that there's an incentive for somebody to hoard and to have more than they need which is what that which is what the communist argument is um and uh and there was something else that i'm losing now um but, the, but there's definitely the idea that that if if it's a free-for-all that there's going to be people that get in there that are get an unfair share. There's also the idea that the people who took the risk and did the work, like we like we were talking about, that those people reap the rewards. That the people who didn't take the risk, that those are the people, those are the have-nots that are now pissed. That the people now, that other people now have something they don't have. Mm-hmm. That they're the ones that didn't do what was needed to get that for themselves. Yeah. So there's that, and I think that's the conservative side. That's the that's the anti-communist side of the argument. It's like, hey. The, this the it's the it's the angle that looks at at the whole communist philosophy as a sore loser philosophy, and there's some truth in that for sure. And if you get enough sore losers together to push around to all the winners, you know, you can actually you can actually succeed in doing that. Yeah, and that happened in various places in, in the 20th century. Yeah, yes, it did. Um, I forget. Yeah, I don't know. I. That's a. Have you ever heard of a guy named Max Stirner? I don't think so. He's a guy who is a kind of not a not kind of. He was an anarchist philosopher. Uh, I think the only picture of him 
is a drawing that Friedrich Engels did. Oh, really? They used to get together. He used to be part of some kind of group that a bunch of like influential. They were called the Young Hegelians. Interesting. Um, and and yeah, and, Engels just doodled a little sketch of him. And that's the only like picture anyone has of him. So I'm gonna have to do a dive on that. Oh, the, the you would young, be interested. Young Hegelians. Yeah, that's a reference to Hegel, Hegel. the philosopher. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I am. I have such a boner for Hegel and for uh, um, Schopenhauer. And for um, uh, the the Dazan guy, what's his name? The German guy, um, Heidegger. Oh yeah. Um, but I've found some interesting, Avalate some interesting shit, and I'll just bring it up now if you don't mind. Yeah. So I've been doing these Plato episodes. I I I put one up, maybe two. I can't remember. And I work. I'm working on two others, and I don't know when I'll publish them. I'm trying not to squeeze them all together so people don't get like you know, three weeks of nothing but Play-Doh for me, but I've been digging into it. And one of the things I keep bringing up is this phrase that you hear all the time, that everything is a footnote to Plato. What I found recently, reading this dialogue called Parmenides, this Platonic dialogue called Parmenides, all of that Hegel and Schopenhauer and Heidegger stuff, Plato did it already. Yeah. This, this is like when, when, when we had that episode of South Park, Simpsons did it, Simpsons did it. Simpsons yeah, did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. This is Plato did it. Plato did okay. it. Plato did all of it, man. And so I'm starting to see, like, my mind was kind of blown. And I am, I'm going to do an episode on this Parmenides, which is a dialogue I never even heard of. Like, I've heard of, like, the Symposium and the Republic and yeah. some of these. I never heard of Parmenides. It is blowing my MFing mind. And it it is saying the things that Heidegger said and the things that Hegel said. I couldn't believe it. That's crazy. You know. How many years before? So many years. Plato's <laughs> Plato's four hundred BC, yeah. and Heidegger lived it like in like I thought it until like the fifties or something. Like didn't Heidegger live into in the modern time? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, when I was going through that stuff, I encountered one piece from the symposium that was like those quotes that we were doing episodes from earlier on our totalitarian series. Yeah. So oh. I was like, oh, maybe I can collect these and we can do a Plato on totalitarianism, and maybe I still will. But I've only found one worthwhile quote so i was going to read it if you want to if yeah, you want to go read for it. it all right so here's plato on totalitarianism all right this comes from the symposium and he says he says in ionia and other places and generally in countries which are subject to the barbarians the custom is held to be dishonorable loves of youths share the evil repute in which philosophy and gymnastics are held because they are inimical to tyranny for the interests of rulers require that their subjects should be poor in spirit and that there should be no strong bond of friendship or society among them, which love, above all other motives, is likely to inspire, as our Athenian tyrants learned by experience. And this is the reason why, in the first place, a hasty attachment is held to be dishonorable, because time is the true test of this and of most other things. And secondly, there is dishonor in being overcome by the love of money or of wealth, or of political power, whether a man is frightened into surrender by the loss of them, or having experienced the benefits of money and political corruption, is unable to rise above the seductions of them. Oof. Mic drop. Plato. So, this is the one that I was able to find so far. If I can find enough to do a whole episode on it, we'll do it. Cool. But this is a good one. It was pretty good. This this one, all right, so in Symposium, this is, they're, they're talking about love in Symposium. The whole conversation's about love. Okay. So, but I think it's interesting that we started talking about community and that anarcho-Christian idea, and here, we're, here he's talking about, I'll just read this again. He said, 
He said, for the interests of rulers require that their subjects should be poor in spirit and that there should be no strong bond of friendship or society among them. So when you're saying you're yearning for community and you're seeing maybe a, a, an opportunity in religious community to give you a greater, greater participation in that uh, and understanding that what the, gover- what the federal government has done over the last 90 years is to slowly reduce the influence of religion mm-hmm. and reduce the community that people have outside of the government and community, you know, the, the, the you know, municipal government, the state government, the federal government, that we're having, we're having less and less ability to have attachments on our own. Yep. And the only ones that are permitted are the, the, are the government, the government communities. Yep. Um, and so Plato's saying that that is what the rulers want because why? Because if you have no other communities, then you're going to be that much more dependent on and identify that much more with the state. Yep. That's you got anything, the idea. You got anything else on that? No, I, I just, it is crazy that Plato's saying that because that's like, that's been like the idea for me for a long time. Like, you know, the state is doing everything they can to dissolve bonds between people because people throughout history have depended on each other. Uh, and if you can get them to not depend on each other, the game's over. And I feel like the fact that they have been able to push us around on this COVID shit so much mm-hmm. is just them reaping the benefits of doing this. You're right about that. It's funny because, again, they're talking about love in the symposium. And when, when Plato says that that the rulers want people poor in spirit, they don't have strong bonds of friendship or society with one another, he says that that's love that's being removed. And, and that, that's the most powerful part to me because it makes me think of those apartment buildings in New York City mm-hmm. with 50,000 people. Stacked and they're on all top strangers. of each yeah. They're all strangers to each other. And, uh, you know... The less we have love for one another and the less identification we have with each other, um, the easier it is for us to be manipulated. We become sheeple, as Josh Hamilton said. We, we, become, we become people that can be pushed around by the central authority. And it's funny t- to me that he's saying it boils down to uh, the government interfering with our bonds of love with one another uh, so that what's left to love is the state. And then I'm imagining like a a situation where we are, are worshiping the state. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's the only thing left to love. It becomes this idol, and it's fucking scary, man. Yeah, I uh, I think sometimes I try to like get away from talking about like the state and fuck the government, you know, uh, on the podcast. But it's hard to because like the things that I want to talk about otherwise, like culture and shit like that, they all fucking tie right back into it. It's just like them constantly manipulating the culture to worship the state. Mm. Um, so that's frustrating. It's, it's weird because I don't know if it's just like an instinct and a, a pattern that human beings always fall into because of our, because of our instincts, because of the way we're wired that, that we want to love and we want to worship things and, and uh, you know, if the government can find a way, if people, if some individuals can find a way to raise themselves to a position to be the to be the object of that love, like the fucking pharaoh in Egypt, mm-hmm. and everybody's just loving them and praising them, and then they become like a celebrity who who needs that, and it's like the system they preserve the system to preserve that position of privilege for them, just the way you know 
and they go down kicking and screaming like Cuomo, just like a child actor who can't make it after the age of 15 or something. Like, mm-hmm. um, and you know what happens to those people? They commit suicide. It's just an interesting, it's an interesting thing, man. Yeah. I, I no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, you know, just try not to be too mean spirited. Even, even with people like Cuomo, I don't want to wish that he would kill himself. Oh, I wasn't trying to imply No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I guess I just didn't want to say it, but I, guess I kind of was. Like, fuck that, dude. I don't, I mean... It, okay, so that reminds me of... This is just something else popping off the top of my head. Uh, like, you know, the anniversary of John McCain's death was the other day, yeah. and fuck John McCain. I Like, people were posting things like you know, whatever it was, four years ago today, we lost our hero, and they're talking about John McCain's brain tumor. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, John McCain's a piece of shit, man. Like, make fun of him all you want to. Like, I don't... The dude was, like, the worst war hawk. Like, I'm supposed to feel bad because this guy who vote never voted no on a single fucking war in his life, and he's a guy, by the way, who got shot down in Vietnam and got, you know, was held captive for oh, yeah. years. This dude is, like... Always, always down to send people to do that shit. That's interesting. Fuck John McCain. You know, and then you wonder, you wonder why or how, because one of two things happens. Either someone like John McCain, who suffered as a POW, uh, is willing to send other people into that same potentiality. Young children, you know, are, are the next generation of American men, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's willing to send those people into the same danger. Because why? Because he thinks it's worth the risk. Because he thinks um, he, you know, he got through it. So you know, if it happens somebody else to somebody else, they can get through it. Like what? What's going through your head? I'm willing to bet it has a lot more to do with lobbyist money. That's what I am willing to bet. Just, that it's got to do with like Raytheon and Boeing money so and he's, shit. He's just going to bury all of the torture and psychological damage of, from his own, you know, his own history. He's just going to bury that under a pile of gold coins. I think so. Jesus. But I don't know how we got off on that tangent. Oh, because of Cuomo. So, yeah, no, I don't care. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, this, this, this other bit that Plato talks about is, is about the love, the love of money and political power and corruption, which is interesting. Yeah. Because even this in the Republic, in the days of the Republic, is something that, that Plato's talking about as though, you know, it's, it's, it's a real problem. It's, it could be the Achilles heel. So and he says... Um, he says, because time is the, uh, hold on, he says, uh, and secondly, there's a dishonor in being overcome by the love of money or of wealth or of political power, uh, whether a man is frightened into, into surrender by the loss of them, right? So that's important. Um, you, you find yourself infatuated with something like money. Um, and you can imagine the big corporate tycoons, you can imagine the corrupt, corrupt politicians, you can imagine, you know, all that sort of thing, that you become frightened into, into surrender by the loss of them. Oh, yeah. So that, now you can be manipulated because because you don't want to be without that thing anymore. Yep. So it's just one more thumb on you. Um, and then he says, or having experienced the benefits of money and political corruption is unable to see above those seductions. You know, that, that statement is true as true today. Hell yeah. And that is, I, I want to say it's amazing, but it's deeply sad. Yeah. What what have we learned? Not a damn thing. And there's no and there's nobody willing to be up upright and to and to avoid the seductions of of money and power. Yeah. It makes you I mean, were there 
were there people who were standing up against it back then? I mean, you, if that's the nature of humans, like, I don't know. I guess I just feel like if that's the nature of humans, how have we gotten this far? But that makes me think of like what that dude John was saying. There's no such thing as progress. Yeah. We feel like we've gotten this far, but what the fuck does that mean? It's such a true thing. That's such a true thing that he yeah. said. So this, so this reminds me of uh, something that I never understood well from Aristotle. Um, and by the way, I had a, I had a book, uh, Aristotle's Politics, that came from Mary. Okay. That I still had in my collection. And that was the only Aristotle I ever really read. And it, was, it just happened to be the one that he wrote about politics. And he's just talking about different forms of government and how, and basically the philosophy about how it should work. And then he talks about whether it's good or bad, whether it's better than the others or worse than the others. And I, this is all off the top of my head, and it goes back to when I was a teenager, so this is probably all going to be wrong to some degree. But I'll tell you what I got stuck on. So he talks about democracy, and he talks about tyranny, and he talks about oligarchy, and he talks about uh, aristocracy. So there's these two ideas of oligarchy and aristocracy. I probably don't understand the difference well enough, but this is what I got stuck on. It's like I can't exactly... T I'm reading Aristotle talk describe what an aristocracy is, which is th the rule of the nobles. And then oligarchy, which I'm pretty sure he describes something like as the rule by the best. So, mm. so, in, so you can imagine maybe an oligarchy is, a way, is, is another way of determining who the best people are to, to rule that isn't what you're born into, which is what an aristocracy is. The wealthy, noble people or whatever, and then their children get born into it, so you have a ruling class. So that's what a, that's what a you know, um, uh, um, you know the, opposite, the opposite is is the oligarchy where you've got the people who might actually be the best rather than the people oh. we, we pretend to be the yeah, best because they were born into it, yeah. the aristocracy. Yeah, to to get into the oligarchy, you have to you have to get there. You have to like you know yeah. uh, do something. So that was my understanding of the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm and you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, and I kind of kind of forget where I was going with this idea here. But but the idea that um, if we could find who if we could find a group of people who would legitimately be the best rulers, that somehow that would be. The best form of government. It would be better than a democracy. It would be better than a tyranny. It would be better than an aristocracy, um, because we already talked about many times why democracy. You know, the key flaw in democracy is that if everybody has an equal say, then the majority rules. And if the majority is wrong, it means you, the whole country is going down down the tubes. And that's of legitimate concern. If if you take a look at the population, and 90 percent of you are a bunch of dum dums. Um, the majority rule is a bad way of running the society, um, you know. And if you have a tyranny, you just got one, you know, asshole making all the decisions and fuck everybody else. That's not a great society. If you have an aristocracy, you're basically rolling the dice to say, are these noble people going to be good or are they not? Mm -hmm. It's just like in in Rome, is the emperor going to be a Marcus Aurelius or is it going to be a Nero? We don't know. What's it going to be next? Yeah. Could be, you know, it could be one extreme or the other. But this idea of an oligarchy in theory might be if you could really pick the best people and get them together that you could uh that you would have the ideal form of government and and plato actually um so i was talking about aristotle but plato actually talked about this but in a way that was like fantasy he talked about something called the philosopher king oh yeah so he's like what we need is a is a philosopher king somebody who rules 
like a tyrant does. He, he, what he says goes. But the thing is, he's the wisest of all men. The thing is, he's going to take every, he's going to take everything into consideration. Um, he's never going to be corruptible. He's because he's a philosopher. He's he's going to be true and honest. He's going to make the decisions that are best for his people and not for himself. And if only that were possible, we'd have a perfect form of government. But that's but there's no such person. And uh, and so the oligarchy is it seems to be Aristotle's answer to that question. I don't know. What do you think? Um, it also seems impossible, by the way. Yeah, it definitely seems impossible. I just, you know, a lot of times when you're translating really old shit like that, the words, sometimes they use words. It's like, I don't know that I would have translated it that way. Uh, and I don't know because I haven't read it. But when he says the best, I don't. I wonder what he means by that. Does he mean the best suited to govern or does he mean like the best at what they were doing before they started govern like, like yeah. people who collect uh, people who attain resources easily and like use those resources for things well uh they're the best at that mm -hmm. whatever they were doing before right. um but that type of person is not necessarily going to be the best person to govern and i think that that's true because governing is like a near impossible task. That's why I want as little of it as possible. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, that's kind of the question that made it hard for me to make sense of it. I was I had the same thought. I'm like, what does he mean rule by the best? Rule by the people who think they're the best? Yeah. You know, who gets to make that decision and is that like what does that mean? Well, you think of like old well, I think even today Russia as an oligarchy, you know? And they're, the the oligarchs are in the position they're in because either they or somebody back in their line of secession was fucking so good at what they were doing, even if that was like killing people, you know, mm -hmm. um, being ruthless. They were so good at that that they attained all of these resources, and now nobody can really fuck with them. Yeah. Um, See, and, I think, and I think the problem with that is, is how, how do you keep an oligarchy from turning into an aristocracy? That's a good question. I think it kind of does. I think that's probably the flaw. Because yeah. even if you have the, if you start off with the best people, and maybe that means like the people that have the best intentions, the purest intentions, the uncorruptible ones, the ones that are willing to hear each other out and do and whatever. If it, you can imagine whatever the best possible situation might be, uh, that even those people, um, once their kids take over from them, or even beforehand, that you know, if if they're not if they're not incorruptible. What are they going to do? They're going to want to keep that power and privilege for them and their children, and that becomes an aristocracy immediately. Yep. And what happens there is if any of those uh, aristocrats decide that there should be less aristocrats, then they can just take care of one another until there's one left, and then you have a tyranny. Yep. And then what happens is the people say, this one person's making all the rules for everybody and pissing everyone off and taking everything from me and keeping me under their thumb then all the people realize, hey, there's 300 million of us and only one of them. And then what happens is a democracy is formed. And the, here the cycle continues. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. It's, a, it's right back to that. There is no such thing as progress. It's scary because where are we right now in that cycle? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're in the tyranny. We're, we're on the tyranny side of the spectrum. And, and what scares me is that means that the that the democratic revolution is coming and that can, that can be a good thing and it can be a terrible thing. I'm not 100% sure that we are f through the tyranny part of it yet. Oh, I think yeah. that oh, there yeah. could be some dark times coming to end the tyranny portion of it. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully not. Hopefully I'm just being pessimistic, but well, I think what, what 
that ticking time time bomb is um, where the tyranny tips over the edge is that overreach that becomes the last straw. So what is the government going to do that finally makes its people say, fuck entirely off? I am, this is me being pessimistic. I don't, I'm afraid that there is no point anymore. I'm afraid that we passed it a long time ago and that people are just never going to do anything. That's like my, I'm really concerned about that. So then that brings me to uh, a topic that I think we were going to talk about or maybe we did talk about one time. It's about the libertarian uh, people that say, let's just form our own libertarian community. And there was one I remember hearing about years ago that I don't, I don't know if it went anywhere, but there's an island off the coast of uh, Detroit maybe. I think there's like oh. – maybe there was a park on it or something. But there was a bunch of libertarian people that were, that were trying to purchase the island because they wanted to make it a like a – like a little Rome inside the United States, yeah. an independent libertarian paradise where they could test out and show the rest of the, the rest of the country what's possible if you exist under those rules. Yeah. Um, I, again, I know there's lots of different people that have talked about potentially doing something like that, including those those floating islands. Oh yeah, I can't remember who it was seasteading. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I can't remember the dude's name either, but he. I remember there was like one big advocate for it. Is it Peter Thiel? It might be. You know Peter Thiel, that he's like that uh, tech dude? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it was. I think he was a big seasteading advocate. And, and you can imagine that. Like, they were, they were talking, they were even, I remember them talking about how they would do this, how they would build the platforms, how they would, how they would continue to expand them, mm-hmm. and how they would have to go out far enough to be like in international waters, but they want to be close enough to the United States where they can t- avail themselves of trade with the United States. And they had to be able to feed the people. So they even had this idea of how they would structure the islands to create a... Um, do you remember this? They, they were going to grow uh, seaweed in the middle of it. Mm. So they would have the, they would be able to harvest all this nutrient-rich seaweed that, that they could use for like a vegetable staple to feed the community. Like That's how far into the planning they were getting. That's interesting. Man. That is. It's cool as hell. Um, I don't know that that's for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know that living on a floating, like a big ass raft, uh, eating seaweed all day is for me. That doesn't sound good. Uh, although it sounds better than, than some of the alternatives. Uh, but, uh, there's some interesting stuff that I've been kind of like looking into regarding this. And one, two, one thing, there's this dude named Ryan Dawson. He's, uh, he has a show that's He's kicked off of everything. He's not on YouTube. He's not on anything like that. He's on, like, Odyssey, and he might be on, like, BitChute still. Mm. Uh, But he has this show called the ANC Report, the Anti-Neocon Report. And this dude is, like, a historian. He's got so much knowledge in his head, man. Mm. It's, uh... He's one of the most interesting people to listen to talk. Him and, like, Scott Horton are two of my favorite guys. They just, like, deep treasure troves of information. And on this one show... Um, he was talking about, you know, that dude, um, McAfee, John McAfee. Oh yeah. Um, he was talking about him and how he's actually, you know, like libertarians kind of have this thing where they think John McAfee is cool. That guy, Ryan Dawson was saying that John McAfee is like an Epstein, like a kind of guy, like fucking young girls and shit like that. Uh, but what he was talking about that I thought was interesting was the island that uh, one of the islands that McAfee was going to, 
uh, is the island that he lived on. It's called Hatteras Island. Yep. It's off the coast of North Carolina. It's one of the Outer Banks Islands. Ooh. And that and another one, another island, Ocracoke is the name of the island. They have this history of being like these little anarchist paradises. Um, just because they're small islands and there's not like a lot of... Um, you know, like it's a small community. There's not a lot of government oversight. Like uh, they send out, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like county sheriffs and shit to do some policing. But a lot of the time, there's not much going on out there. You know, interesting. Uh, so it's had this history of just being these little interesting anarchist islands. Uh, Blackbeard oh. was like based there because you know it's a, it's off the coast. You know, it's like people aren't gonna fuck with you. Um, but. The thing that is really interesting to me, and it makes me like, could you keep the job that you have and move to a different state? Uh, it, uh, it, no, not exactly. Not really. I, I would need to have certain modifications to my job, but gotcha. it, it, it's possible. Yeah, dude, let's go to New Hampshire, man. I'm trying to convince Chelsea, like, that I want to go to New Hampshire. <laughs> um, that that one dude who I'm gonna try to get on the podcast, Jeremy Ho- Jeremy Kaufman, he uh, is. I, I don't know what his position is, but somehow he's involved in the Free State Project, mm-hmm. which is a collection of libertarian-minded people, like a wide swath of libertarian thought. It's not like they're all ANCAPs. Um, but this effort to get people to move to New Hampshire and create like what I've been oh, talking about. I, I did hear about yeah, that. Man, yeah, man, and I want to be there so bad. That would be interesting. Yeah. So you said uh, you said that it, it, it's not up your alley. The idea of uh, seasteading and going and living on a big floating man-made island without without any uh, natural yeah. resources, eating kelp all day. Uh, and when you were saying that, I was thinking in my head, Hong Kong is an island okay. with no natural resources, <coughs> nothing. Yeah. Um, they they became one of the wealthiest and most modern nations in almost no time flat because of because of the free market. Yeah, baby. Because of unfettered capitalism and all the money that was made and that I, that those those libertarians I'm going to call them libertarians those libertarians over there turned this little island with no natural resources on it that nobody wanted into one of the centers of the financial world into a into like a Dubai looking fucking island full of full of just amazing things yeah imagine if libertarians did that right right on the edge of international waters crazy. all over the place yeah, that would be interesting. That know. would definitely be interesting. I, I mean, if that was the case, if there was some like thriving community, I might change my tune. Can you, you imagine? Know? Yeah, but that's why I'm interested in New Hampshire because they're doing that. You know, like mm. it, you know, they might not be creating some kind of gigantic uh, like capitalist metropolis, but they're creating a community where, like, with things that are going on now, these vaccine mandates, mm. it would be really nice. To live with a bunch of people who you know are going to like take care of you and have your back and not kick you out of their business because you chose not to do something. Right. Um, whereas here, I don't know what's going to happen. Like I'm like legitimately concerned about how things are going to go in the near future. Like the way things are going, um, I don't. I just got this new job. You know, like what what happens when I go in and they say, "Hey, you know, I know you just started, but he, you, you know, we don't have." the record that you're vaccinated here um you're gonna have to do that you're gonna have to provide that to us i'm going to say no uh so 
what do I do at that point? Because it seems like every other company is doing right. the same thing. So I, I have an interesting angle on this that may, maybe will be useful for you, and it goes something like this. The people that have objections to getting this vaccine that are legitimate objections are the people that say, look, this is a novel kind of vaccine. It's never existed before. Um, it, it, we got an emergency um, uh, approval so that we didn't have to have these long-term tests. So we don't know what the long-term health health consequences might be or even what the potential side effects are. Um, we don't know that information yet. So if, if you, as, as my employer, are telling me that I am <coughs> compelled to take a risk by, by having, having this vaccine that's, that has, that's untested. Um, if you're t- compelling me to take a risk like that, then I, I need to be compensated for that risk. And I don't mean writing me a $1,000 check. I mean signing a contract that says, in perpetuity, if I have any health-related consequences as a result of this risk that I'm being forced to take, that you as my employer are going to pay for my medical bills entirely for the rest of my life, and you're going to replace my income if I can't work for the rest of my life. That's fair. Yep. So I'll sign on the dotted line and get the vaccine as long as you agree to, to cover the consequences of the risk that I'm being forced to take. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Period. I like that as a tactic. I, I think... Um, it does like theoretically it's a good tactic, but I think that there would be people who would be, who would say yes. Uh, and almost like calling your bluff because they would be right. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I hope it don't, don't show my employers this because then they'll have leverage on me. But if I said that to my employers and they said, okay, they would have called my bluffs successfully because I still not going to do, it. I'm oh, still not going to do it. I would do it. Yeah. In that case I would do it. You know, I don't exactly know why. I guess out of principle. I guess out of principle. But if they're, but if I guess the way I look at it is, if they're willing to accept the, the consequences to such a degree that could, that could cost them, I mean, hypothetically millions of dollars over over years. Um, you know, I mean, come on, man. If I died, then the earning the earning power that I have between now and the, and my death, they have to make that up. Mm-hmm. They have to pay for that. And I don't want to put a price on my own life but something something in me says if i was able to give that gift to my family (laughs) you know i part of me would feel good about that you know so i don't know what that means that's kind of weird i i get where you're coming from like i don't think that's a like a not valid line of thought uh it's not how i feel though uh i i'm not it's just too What's the word? Shady is the word that I want to say. I'm trying to look for like a better, more eloquent word. But everything about it, it like you laid out how untested it is. And then you think about the idea or the fact that the disease that it's like offering you protection from, A, it doesn't even offer you protection from it. You right. can still get it. Right. You can still pass it on to other right. people. Right. You can still die mm-hmm. if you have it. Okay. So what the fuck is the point of getting it? And B, the thing that it's protecting you from, it's not even that bad. You know, like, I know that people have died. Uh, I personally believe that the numbers are extremely inflated. Uh, Right. But even with the inflated numbers... Because it's so political, guys. Because it's so political. Even with the inflated numbers, I'm not scared. You know, I know people who have had it who are not healthy people. And they... 
come through it fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people who have had it and have had a hard time with it, to be fair. Uh, I don't care. I'm willing to take that risk. Uh, yeah. And what I don't, it's just concerning to me that so many companies and even like small companies that I think probably could be like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So many of them are just like, just caving. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? Same thing I was proposing to you, but I'm going to phrase, I'm going to phrase it like mutually assured destruction. Okay. This is what I mean. And for those of, for those of you who don't know that what that uh, what that word means, it, it, that phrase it, it, uh, links back to the Cold War and the idea that enough nations have nuclear weapons that it protects the whole world from nuclear destruction. If it was just the United States that had nuclear weapons and anybody pissed us off or scared us sufficiently, we just drop a nuke. Nobody can re- can retaliate with a nuke, so we're, we're, we get to be the bullies of the world. But what happens is Russia has nukes, China has nukes, Pakistan has nukes, and so if any one of us drops a nuke on anyone else, there's always the possibility that the country will, re- will retaliate by nuking us, and next thing you know, the world is just blown up in a nuclear mushroom cloud, and so we're all so scared of mutually assured destruction that nobody drops nukes on anybody so imagine the same scenario going down like this i say i say to my employer if you're forcing me to get a vaccine then i need to be compensated contractually uh for the risks that are unknown and that means everything i said you have to pay for my medical expenses you have to pay for lost income we have a contract that says that's the case if i if something (coughs) happens to me the employer agrees to do that to me what does that mean have to that agree. means that all of the other employees have to get the same benefit. Now, if if any portion of us has those sorts of consequences that the employer themselves cannot predict because nobody knows what's going to happen long term, potentially they've got 1%, 5%, 20% of their employees. They're going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. Then they cannot afford to mandate us to get a vaccine because if they do, they're potentially setting themselves up for bankruptcy, mutually Assured destruction. That's what I think. Hopefully, it's that's the way that it goes down. We have to stick together, guys. <laughs> that's the problem, man. Like, you know, we were talking about taxation and theft earlier, and I don't know, sometimes I think I say stuff like this and it makes you uncomfortable, but I would like to get a group of people together and just stop paying my taxes, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. uh, I think that what's going to happen is... They're, I'm not going to pay my taxes. They're going to tell me I have to. I'm going to say no. And they're either going to come grab me and put me in prison or kill me because I'm not going to go to prison. Uh, and how many times, if if we if I get like 100 people to do this, how many times are they going to do that before people are like, this is fucked up? You know, I, and I mean, I guess that's kind of calling on people to essentially be martyrs. Yep. Um, but I think we might be to a point where like we have to do that, you know? So I think that if that went down, like you described that a hundred people, a thousand people going to jail or being killed in little communes here and there, that would get written off by the media as a fringe, crazy group of cult people. And it, it would, it, it could probably happen 50 or a hundred times before anybody raised an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. I think it would just be swept under the rug. These people are nuts, you know. Whatever. I think the I think the the better the better possibility is to is to simply rather than getting a, a fifty different groups of a thousand people to do it is to get 
you know, 50,000 people to do it in one group or to get 100 million people to do it. The, the more people you could get to do it, the more effective it would be. It would have to happen all at once, and then it would cripple the government. And it would cripple the government. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's, you know, that's the same tactic that the, that the progressives and the liberals um, used in, that, that touted in the 60s. Yeah. You, know, the, uh, you know, the overwhelm the system. And, um, you know, they, they talked about doing that, like the Weather Underground people talked about doing that by, um, by over-utilizing all the government programs and draining money out of, the, out of the government coffers until they couldn't do, until they couldn't function anymore. We're talking about the same thing just by not giving them money, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, And how many people would have to do that to make a difference? That's a great question. I See, you say, and I agree with you that the corporate media would paint them off Paint all of them off as like uh, racist, basically. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I don't disagree with that, but I think that with what's the word, independent media, I think that I think that it could only happen so many times before people like. I think maybe that might lead to a situation where you have fifty thousand people willing to do it. Um, now. I mean, I do think that there would definitely be some situations where it's just like a Waco, you know? Uh, oh, oh, for sure. You know? But I think that I think that people <clears throat> are starting to understand, like, what went on at Waco. It's like, you don't have to like David Koresh. Like, you don't have to think that he's a good guy to have a problem with the fact that they gassed a bunch of babies to death, mm. you know? Um, and for what? Because they were, like, selling some guns like basically legally, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they they wanted to make an example out of those people. Yeah. I think with independent media and the way things are going now, I think that that would be. I, I think real time, not like years later, like now, uh, where the masses are kind of starting to realize what happened at Waco. I think people would be like, "That's fucked." So that's that's really interesting. So like, so one of the things I've said about you and I is that because we grew up together, we th- we have a lot of the same. Opinions we think along the same lines in a lot of cases, and we have a lot of the same references. So even when if we're we're just like spitballing and thinking about an idea, a lot of times you and I are thinking kind of similarly because we have so much in common. It's interesting, mm-hmm. but in this in this case we have this divergence of opinion uh, where where you're thinking, look, it might actually be possible to have a some small sac- sacrificial lambs creating enough of a um, enough of a, a of a reaction mm-hmm. to really make a difference, and I'm saying, look, strategically, what we need to do is make the biggest difference we can all at once, um, and avoid the need for the sacrificial lambs. So, just hypothetically, if you and I are stuck on these arguments, you think that your way is the best way to be successful, and I think mine is. I'm just saying hypothetically, going back to our conversation about democracy and different types of government. Imagine we exist in a, in a I don't want to call it a tyranny, but a government where it's you and I call, calling the shots. Yeah. Just two people. So this isn't a committee. It's not an oligarchy or an, or, an, or an aristocracy where there's a committee of people that have to agree. It's just you and me with all those things in common. <laughs> now we have to decide how we're going to proceed here, and you and I don't agree. So what happens then? What happens? Either you somehow find a way to silence me or or uh you know i convince me that i should agree with you maybe that means maybe that means killing having me killed and becoming a tyrant um or we compromise and neither of us get what we want so it's just funny how even in this situation with people so similar you can see the pitfalls of democracy it's like even with two people getting getting to agree on on anything how difficult that is yeah and what the potential consequences are it's amazing it is I gotta, um, I gotta pee super bad. You got, I have to pee too. Okay, you want to wrap this up? 
Uh, I still kind of want to talk about the fasting stuff. Well, then let's pause and pee, and then we will return to the All conversation. Right. <laughs> Hold on, you guys. And we're back. Yes, we are. Sorry, I had to take a little pee break there. Feel much better. One of the reasons we had to take that pee break is because I've been drinking a ton of water uh, and just other substances like coffee and uh, unsweetened black tea and green tea uh, because I've been fasting. So we went to Niagara Falls. Uh, me and Chelsea went to Niagara Falls this last weekend. And I came back and I was starting my new job. And um, I just decided that I wanted to try, you know, I've done some intermittent fasting where you fast for like 16, 18 hours every day. And then you have like one or two meals yep. in that that time in between. Uh, but I wanted to try to do some longer fasts. And the first like... We stopped and had lunch in Buffalo on the way back from um, Niagara Falls. And we stopped at a, a place that was on diners, drive-ins, and dives. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was good. Uh, and after that meal, I was like, I'm fasting. For, I'm going to do it for at least 24 hours. Uh, and I ended up going for like 27 hours. And then I ate. Uh, actually, oh, yeah, let me take my phone out. And I'll show, I have this app. It's called Fasting Tracker. Yep. And I just do a custom fast and... Like there are like programs and shit you can do uh, for different results. Um, I, so right now I've been fasting. Well, let's just go over. We'll go to this timeline. While he's doing that, I'll, I wanna, uh, I, I'm here, but go no, ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go I was ahead. Just, I was just going to say that there's all sorts of interesting stuff about fasting that you hear from like, like Rhonda Patrick on mm -hmm. Rogan and, and uh, you know, a bunch of these... Uh, a bunch of these scientists that study aging uh, talk about, I can't remember the guy's name specifically, um, but all sorts of benefits about um, about how in, traditionally human beings starved um, during periods and then they feasted. They starved and they feasted. And that's how, we, because food was not always available. That's yeah. how we were fucking designed. That's how we're adapted. Yep. And that there's all sorts of benefits of, from fasting uh, that improve things like your immune system or your uh you know, different metrics they track for aging. So it actually makes your, you know, that you, you hear people talk about your biological age versus your actual age and they can, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of, what kind of nonsense or, or if that's legit or not, but that, that people have a, have a, uh, a younger, uh, uh, you know, like, like, bi like biological age because of their, because of the certain things they do, including fasting. So there's all sorts of reasons why you might do this, but weight loss being one of them, but go yeah. ahead, Kyle. Um, so, like I said, I started that Sunday and that time I did 27 hours and 40 minutes. And I've basically been fasting every day since I've been back from this vacation. Uh, then I ate something and I, I'm not sure how much time I had in between. Then I had a, but it was, it wasn't much. It was like maybe a few hours. Then I had a 20 hour and 32 minute fast, then eight. Then I had a, this was the shortest one that I did 15 hours and 15 minutes. The next one was 23 hours and 31 minutes, <clears throat> 31 minutes. And then uh, yesterday morning I ate, and that broke a 36-hour and 42-minute fast. Mm. Um, so almost 37. And now I am, where, where is it here? 17 hours and 18 minutes into the current fast that I'm in. And I'm going to go at least for 24 hours. Interesting. And it's had a like drastic effect on the way that I think about things. Um, because I, you know, I've done fasting before, but going like 37 hours without food. Uh, and like if I did, if I ate, you know, on Monday I started fasting and I fasted for 37 hours. And then I, at, when that was over, I just started eating like normal again. 
that would be one thing. But I've been like fasting for a long period of time, eating a meal, then fasting for another long period of time. Yep. Um, doing this has like just completely re- recontextualized the way that I think about f- humans and our need for food. You do not oh. need to be eating as much as you are. Yeah, indeed. Like yes. the vast majority of people, you're eating way too much. Way too much. This 37-hour fast I did, like I knew – me and Chelsea had talked about we're going to go out to breakfast tomorrow morning. So I knew that I was going to be breaking that fast. Uh, when we started like getting the gears in motion to like leave the house and go to breakfast, I started getting hungry because I was like thinking about it. I was like, I'm about to go eat some food. Oh uh, yeah. Before that, I don't even think about it. Like I'm not hungry at all. Yep. Um, and it's just because my mind is like, I'm not eating. And you know, what's interesting about that? Cause I, I experienced that too with fasting and, and, uh, um, when I was doing that, when I was doing that juice fast and, and just doing the inter- intermittent fasting, um, is that when you don't think about food, th- weird things start happening. Like you're not planning your day around it. You know what I mean? You're not thinking about what am I having for lunch or when am I eating it? You don't have those thoughts anymore. So it, it kind of changes the perspective of your day. Um, and when you get over the hump, so to speak, and you don't feel like you, the hunger pangs or the growling stomach anymore, if that, and that stuff goes away, you realize how much of a distraction being hungry is. And you people never think about it because you never it never goes away. Yeah. Did you notice that? Like, like I'm not hungry and I feel like I should be. Like, why, why am I not hungry? And it's like you start noticing how much of a distraction it was before you... Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I think uh, you do spend a lot of time, I did anyways, thinking about... What am I going to eat next? And I, I've noticed while I've been doing this that a lot of my feelings of hunger come from I'm bored. Habit, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I don't, it's like what the fuck am I going to do? I'll eat something, you yep. know? Yep, Uh So I've noticed that, like, my motivations for eating, I, I guess in hindsight, after doing this fasting, this, like, long period of fasting, I've noticed what my motivations for eating were. Mm. And it was not because I was genuinely hungry or mm. needed sustenance, you know. Um, I don't want to skip past that, but I want, to, I want to be sure I ask you about energy. Okay. And your mood, if, you know, like, you know, were you, did you get like irritable? How long did it last? That kind of thing. So the first time when I did the 27 hours, <clears throat> Chelsea thought that maybe I was getting a little irritable. It's hard to tell though, because I'm kind of a prick kind in of an general. Asshole. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it's hard to tell, but like we were kind of getting dinner ready and, uh, Patton, our dog, he, I thought that he, so I was making a salad with, uh, we got one of those like rotisserie chickens mm-hmm. from the grocery store yep. and I, you know, I like cut the chicken all up and, uh, I had, a wing, like, you know, the whole wing section that you get off of a, a whole bird. Uh, I had it sitting on top of my salad. I thought I did. Um, and I, when I like, I turned my back for a second, when I came back, it was gone. And I thought the pat, cause he does that kind of shit. Uh, you know, he'll jump up there and grab something. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that he did it. And I look, I've got a big ass Rottweiler. Okay. He, I can yell at him and I can do like the deep voice stuff and it works to a certain extent, but I will pop him every now and then. Like when he does something, um, it doesn't fucking hurt him. Like he's a tank. Uh, but it, it more effectively lets him know that I'm not happy with him. Yeah. Um, so I did, I, I like whacked him. Uh, and not at first I tried, he did have something in his mouth. He was chewing on something. I tried to get it out 
And I feel like that's fine. I can, I, I'm your boss. If I say, take it out of your mouth, you fucking drop it. Exactly. Um, so <laughs> exactly. I, I went to grab it out of his mouth and he like kind of bit me a little bit. Like he, he didn't really like bite me, bite me, but he got me with his teeth harder than he should have. Yeah. And that's when I like whacked him. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out that he didn't actually take the wing off the salad. <laughs> I had set it down cause it was on top of my salad, but for some reason I took it off and put it somewhere else. I think I was going to put dressing on it or something. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so she thinks that was because I was like, like cranky from fasting. I don't think it was. I think like, I, I wouldn't have even yeah. like give it if he didn't like bite me a little bit. So he like earned it. So, so this has sparked a whole other question in me that I want to ask you. We don't have to necessarily go down this road if we, if you don't want to, but I, when you said that he's your dog and you're the boss and he, and if you say, take it out of your mouth, take you motherfucker, take it out of your mouth. Yeah. And I, Heard you say it, and I agree with you. I'm like, that's yes, of course. That's how you have to handle that situation because, because the moment the dog has a question about who the boss is, you've lost him. I mean, yeah, you you know, you can end up with a tyrant in your house that way, especially the, the big dog like that. Hell yeah. Um. So, but the, but there was something that this this liberal kind of part of the back of my brain is just like, you know. Oh man! Think think about how he's treating the dog, and like and like and you agree with him, you son of a bitch. It's like there's this power dynamic yeah. where you're like, you will do, I'll impose my will, and you will obey. And there's a part of me that's like, yes, yeah. that's how my spirit responds to it. And I'm like, you know, that's the kind of thing that that a liberal would say, you know, that's the evidence that you're a racist. That's the evidence that you're a patriarch. That's the evidence that because you responded like that, what do you what do you think about that? I think that's fine. You can think that about me. Um, no, I agree with I, no, you. No, no, I thing. know, I know you do. I, the other person that you're th- this like theoretical who is not even liberal, theoretical. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Uh, these people. I don't care. You can think that I'm a patriot. I am. You know, like uh, if that's how you choose to contextualize it, the way I choose to contextualize it is, I pay for your fucking food. You know, I feed you. I do everything you need to survive. If it wasn't for me, you would be fucked. Yeah. Um, so if I say drop something, you drop it. I, I mean, I treat, and I treat him well. Like, yeah. But, I, yeah. And that's the thing is like, you, you it's like, look, I, I'm not going to ask something unreasonable of you. So if I'm telling you to get it out of your mouth, there's a good goddamn reason for it. I'm, I'm a noble, I'm a noble dictator. I'm only going to yeah. force my will on you when it's in your best interest. You know, that's what, that's what it sounds like. And then if you take the dog out of it and you put plug in children instead, mm-hmm. you're paying for their food. You're, you're providing for their shelter. You're the boss. And I'm wondering, is there a difference in that situation? I think that there is an obvious difference, uh, but I think that there are definitely some similarities, too. Um, seems like you have a responsibility to pop your child. And I what, don't. And what I mean is you, you have a responsibility to, to socialize your children. And if you don't, you haven't done your job as a parent. And if they're breaking the rules and you have to, and you have to punish them for it, it's your responsibility to punish them for it. You, as their as their boss, so to speak, aren't doing your job if you don't punish your child for something like that. I think I agree with you. Uh, I think you know you said pop before and punish. I think kind of for a lot of people implies a physical. I am completely against hitting kids. I do it with my dog because a like I said, he's a tank. It doesn't fucking hurt him. Uh, it just, like I said, it more effectively lets him know yes. that I'm upset. Yeah, with you him. spoke very carefully about that, and I agree. He, and I agree with you. And I probably spoke a little bit loosey goosey there, but I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I wasn't even done, but oh, no, go, no, you, you go ahead. What? Go ahead. I forgot. Now I forgot too. <laughs> uh, so, um, 
It, it was something about I basically. It was something about physical physical punishment. It's I'm like, just not. I, I don't think you should hit kids. Like I don't think that that's okay. I agree with you, unless it's unless it's necessary. What I mean is, especially boys. And I listen. I grew up. I'm a boy. I know. I know. There were times where, where, I there were times where I needed to be persuaded physically. You know, um, and when you, and you ever see uh, the dog whisperer guy. When he says, you know, like he has to get the attention of the dogs when he's training them, and he'll like um, poke them in the side with his finger, yeah, or something like that. It's like there are there are instances when you need someone to break you free of a overwhelming emotion. And for a dog, you can imagine whatever that might be—the desire to go bang the neighbor dog, or the desire to Most eat the, time eat the, it's just the hot dog out of your hand, yeah. yeah, or whatever it is. But you've been in that situation as a child, um, where you were overwhelmed and irrational, and and you were acting the fool, and sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, somebody speaking to you nicely about it or telling you to stop or whatever isn't enough. If you can convince, if you can correct your children's behavior without being physical, you should. If you cannot, you have a responsibility as a parent to do that. I believe that. Maybe I, call me old fashioned. I'm not. I'm not talking about beating your kid with the switch. Sure. But there is a moment where you know. Sometimes it's necessary, and if you don't do it because you're because you're kind, if you don't no, do it because don't. you're kind, there isn't there isn't an, an instance where you're doing your children a disservice. I'm not not doing it because I'm kind. I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because you know, like we talked about Mises and the Bob Murphy thing. I think that how I mean, I know that you've heard all this stuff before. It's it's Molino stuff. Um, I think that resorting to hitting is counterintuitive to what you want. It could be hypocritical when you're telling your kid not to hit and you're spanking them on the butt. I agree with that. It's not even what I mean. I mean, that. I think that is true, but I think that if you are telling your kid, hey, don't, I don't know, don't, don't, you need to turn your homework in. You have to turn your homework in. If you don't, I'm going to hit you. I don't think that that makes them want to turn their homework in. Right, and I don't think that's appropriate either. Yeah, I mean, I know that's like probably not the greatest example, but I'm just like trying to pick some, you know, I was just like picking it to uh, well, an issue. Yeah, well, let me, let me give you an example that comes to my mind, and I don't remember the context of this exactly, but I remember when I was a teenager, I got hot under the collar one time. My dad smacked me in the face. Oh. And it was like immediately shut me down and got me to be introspective. It was like, oh, I just got hit in the face by my dad. It wasn't hard. It was a smack, open hand in the face. And, it, and he could have he could have hurt me. He didn't, but he got my attention, and it snapped me out of that. It's like when you're a teenager and you can get possessed by anger or whatever it is that's driving you. Sometimes you need to be popped in the face. I guess I, I don't. I, I mean, I I do wonder. You were talking about Caesar Milan and like poking the dog. You know, like I wonder is there a difference between me like full like I, I would kind of consider that being what I do to patent. Like I'm not like hauling off and punching him, right, you know? Right, yeah. Um, I do wonder if there's like some kind of separation between those things. Like I'm not really harming you. I'm just kind of like letting you know, I mean, I, I could do the same thing with words potentially, but maybe it's not as effective. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the pain with physical punishment, first of all, I think it works best when your children are young. Um, and that's kind of a controversial thing to say. I don't think like, hitting a teenager is a good idea necessarily. Mm -hmm. I don't think what my dad did, did to me was necessarily a good thing. I'm just saying it worked in that instance to stop me from this, you know, rampage I was on. Um, do you remember what you were angry about? I, I don't, but I, I don't, but it was something to do with a girlfriend. Oh, um, but 
but I do remember when I was a kid getting my ass spanked one time uh, because I was disrespectful. I, I'll tell you the story. You may remember this, but I, um, so I have a, a grandparent that lives out of state and they would come visit like once or twice a year. And this is the only member of my family that ever had any money. So, and we, like I said, we never, we, we never had a lot of money. So there was times when grandpa would be visiting and we'd be like buying school clothes. Like we'd be like buying clothes at the mall or like, you know, because you know, yeah. grandpa was there. Yeah. And so, um, that, that's what happened. We went somewhere, I got like a pair of pants or something. And I was like, you know, well, I don't remember. It was before we moved from Columbus. So I was six, seven years old maybe. And I was just oh, like, you okay. know, I hate these, I hate these shorts. I wasn't grateful. I was grateful, you know, and my, and my parents, you know, it would, they would, you can, you can understand the situation. Sure. So my mom was like, you know, you're in trouble. And we drove home. And uh, as soon as I got home, my dad told me to go wait in my room. And I went, went to my room and he, I'm in there like fretting for a few minutes and he comes in and he just puts, puts me over his knee and he spanks my ass. And I remember, you know, I remember it. I remember it vividly actually for being so, so, so young. I remember it not hurting right away. And I was thinking, Oh, this isn't so bad. But then it just kept going. Oh yeah. And then it gets raw and then I it starts hurting. And then I was like, I misjudged this situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I remember it vividly today. And I have a I have a very like powerful instinct for gratitude. Is it possible that that memory being so vivid and it being about ingratitude is connected to me be having such an emphasis on gratitude today? Possibly. And that's a hugely important part of my character. It's something I'm pr- that I'm proud of that I kind of am proud to identify with to have that quality. And it, you know, the point is my dad in being physical made that memorable to me and corrected my behavior in a very positive way. Could he have done that in a way that wasn't physical? Probably. But, he, you know, it was, a, it was a different time. You know, yeah. it was fucking 1990 or whatever. Yeah. 1991 or something. So I feel like uh, a lot of times with situations like this where you're talking about, you know, your parents or so, you're talking to someone about their parents. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying this about you, but like people tend to get like defensive, you know, like, uh, no, my parents were good, you know. And it's like just because I disagree with like using physical, you know, physical means to discipline your children doesn't mean that I think that like your parents are bad. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, I think that it's like a, a cumulative thing. It's like you are the, the end product of like all of your actions. It's not like, you know, one thing and you're written off the board. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, for me, it's more, I, I think it's good that you th- you feel like that may have like caused that gratitude in you. I think that it goes the other way a lot of times. I think it makes people resentful a well, lot. You know, I can't argue with that. I, yeah. I have a I have a cousin that I can see that kind of resentment in for the same reason. Yeah, and he's my basically my age. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can't argue with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what? It's it, it, retrospect hindsight. It, it, that may be some part of it, and also because I kind of turned out okay, maybe I sort of give an excuse to all that stuff, but I'm not going to write off the fact that, that physical punishment is sometimes necessary. And if you refuse to do it as a parent, because for any reason, when you, when you are, when you recognize that it is necessary and you don't do it for whatever reason, shame on you. It's like you're avoiding doing the hard thing. Like I continue to say in this podcast that it will hurt you more than it will hurt that kid. I, I get that. And if you say to yourself, I can't hit my sweet child, I can't cause them to cry. 
And you know, if you if you avoid that responsibility, that's because you're a pussy. That's on you. You're avoiding you're avoiding that for yourself. You don't want to feel bad about it. You know. I don't I don't necessarily agree. Well, I felt that way. Yeah. I've I've I felt that way. Sure. So, I can understand, you know. Uh, just from like the outsider's position, that's not necessarily how I see it. Um, and maybe it's Stefan Molyneux poisoning my mind with his, with his cult leadership. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm big on the, the peaceful parenting stuff. And when I have kids, I hope that I will be able to abide by that. But who fucking knows? That's why like, that's why I'm, I always try to say, yes, I understand like you have a better, um, you know, grip on on what this is than I do so that's fine <laughs> well um oh man I'm gonna forget there was a good one I wanted to ask you about because I know we we obviously we were talking about fasting and we've derailed off that which I don't want to entirely do yeah we have to go back to that um, we definitely have to go back to that um oh I know what I was gonna tell you do you remember how we were talking about how it's hard to communicate to your kids sometimes things that you that you think yes would help them yeah so my girls sometimes they'll fight Mm-hmm. And I, and this is what I think. I don't want them hitting each other. I don't want them to be violent. I don't want them to, uh, you know, be little assholes. I want them to be polite, you know. And then at the same token, I'm like, if somebody pushes them around, I want them to punch them. Yeah. So like, don't get pushed around. And and you can see a little bit of heat coming off me because I let myself get pushed around when I was a kid. And I'm like, I don't want that for my kids. I want you to stand up for yourself. If some if some bully is bullying you, pop them in the motherfucking mouth, and I'll deal with the principal. And you know that's how I feel about it. Um, but at the same time, they're fighting with each other, and I'm like, no hitting, girls, no hitting. So I have to communicate to my daughter that there's a time to hit someone, and there's a time to not. And most of the time, it's the not, and you have to learn that. But how do you tell them the nuance of which is which? So I'm in this position where I'm telling my parent, my children, hit and not hit. Yeah. And I don't want to tell them not to hit if it means that they're never going to hit when, it, when they need to hit. And sometimes you need to hit. Yeah. That is a, a conundrum. Otherwise, your peaceful parenting potentially turns your kids into people that won't hit back at the government, Kyle. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, that... And, and it boils down to something that I kind of have a problem with in like the way that people think about it currently, but the, the non-aggression principle, like, yeah. I mean, you aggress or no, it's not aggressing. You, you can use force when people aggress against you. That's fine. Um, but I mean, that's a hard thing to explain to a child, you know, yeah. the non-aggression principle. Yeah. I, they're, they're used to watching like these, these. I don't even like hypnotic cartoons. You know, you start talking to them about the, you know, philosophical principles and I yeah. don't think it's going to go over that. That's well. what I mean, man. That's so that's the power of myth. You guys, it's to, it's telling the kids a story that they can understand Hell yeah. that will eventually reveal a deeper meaning. That's amazing. Yeah. I do like that. Back to fasting, Kyle. back to fasting. So I just wanted to, uh, you were saying, we talked about like, go ahead. Well, you were, so where we left off was you saying, you had that one. I asked you if it affected your mood in the beginning, and you yeah, had that, yeah. there was oh, that one right. story where Chelsea thought it might have. Otherwise, I don't really agree with her. I don't think that that was because I was uh, because I don't. I haven't felt hungry like this entire week of fasting. I have not felt like I I gotta eat something. You did know? You, did you notice having like a hair trigger? Did you notice like your emotions? No, nope. nope? I've been working a new job. I've been like you know under high stress, mm. uh, and I feel fine. I feel totally fine. I feel good. Um, there are definite benefits. Uh, you know, I'm sure that, the, you know, the anti-aging stuff, I'm not like putting that off at all. I think, you know, after about 24 hours of uh, fasting, people go into some kind of a thing called 
I, w- I was pronouncing it autophagy. Uh, apparently, people pronounce it autophagy. autophagy yeah. I don't like that as much. <laughs> uh, but uh, if autophagy is the way I'm supposed to say it, that's fine. So you go into autophagy, and it's like your your cells like clean themselves up, like they get rid of like degraded and like fucked up right. parts of themselves. Uh, so and, and the idea behind that is basically. Your body spends so much resources digesting that if you're not digesting, your cells will have time to do other shit like mm-hmm. housekeeping. Yeah. That's interesting. It's pretty interesting too because like I can't think of the name of the chemical, but like your body uses a certain chemical that it takes in to create new cells and stuff like that. And if you need 300 grams of this chemical to make new cells, but you only take in 100 grams of that chemical, your body goes into like different modes, like, like taking from different areas of itself to create those things. Uh, so all of that stuff is super interesting. Um, but it's like hard to quantify. Like, I don't know, you know, I can't look at my cells and tell you that they're, they're newer or something, you know, but what I can tell you is that I have felt extremely mentally sharp Mm. um like just i don't know i mean i just feel like in the moment more like uh i feel like i'm more aware more connected to reality more i guess i i just feel like yeah more connected to reality like i feel like i have a better like handle on what's going on around me and just like myself even nice um i also feel like my vision is better oh i feel like it's sharper it's like more acute and i also feel like my like range is more like really? my um what's my peripheral vision has gone back more so do you know what comes to my mind when you say that like imagine imagine if we're back in the stone age and you haven't eaten in 36 mm-hmm. hours and you have to kill an animal to eat and your and your body's like oh we're going to give extra credit to your vision for like a, a short Absolutely. period of time and we're going to and all of a sudden you can see better yeah. that would make you that would make you more efficient as a hunter that's amazing it makes you more like like more cognitively acute too so you're like oh. making better decisions in that hunt you that's know what amazing. i mean amazing it feels great man i i i highly recommend it if you are like the type of person who has like what am I trying to say? Like blood sugar issues. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you need to like keep that going. Uh, you need to keep like your metabolism going so your insulin doesn't crash or spike or whatever the fuck happens. Yep. Um, but even then, I would say like talk to a doctor and see like a nutritionist or something and see if maybe it's an option for you because I, I love it. How, like, how responsible of you, Kyle? Yeah. I mean, whatever. Just do it if you want to. What about weight loss? Do you, have you noticed any? Oh, yeah. Um, so at first I didn't, I was like the first day, I mean, I lost a pound in the first day. So that's nothing to like, that's right. nothing to shake a stick at. Right. Uh, and then I lost a pound again the other, the next day. Um, but then I really didn't lose much at all until like two days ago I got on and it was like 11 pounds. So. Jesus. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause the, yeah. cause the original, the initial weight is probably just water weight or something, especially if you were drinking a lot, a lot more you know, water, mm-hmm. you might've had some water weight then that came off. And you saw some weight loss. And then that couple of days between the two pounds and the 11 pounds, that was probably just your, your body ad- readapting to this new normal. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, man. And, and then that was 11 pounds. Are, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. In, in like f- three, four days. That's a lot, man. Um, I can, and, see, I can see it in your face. And people, you. people lose more than that too. Like, I mean, people fast more. Dude, there's fasting is interesting. I've been like looking into it a little bit. Um, and people do 
water fasting where you can drink like water. And I mean, I drink black coffee and tea and stuff like that too. Mostly just coffee and water though. Uh, and mostly just water. I mean, I, I, I'll drink a bunch of coffee on an empty stomach and coffee generally doesn't have much of an effect on me. But if I have too much coffee while I'm fasting, I get like all jittery. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. For yeah, sure, yeah. So I, I just try to limit it to water mostly. But there's a bunch of different other kinds of fast. People do dry fasting where you don't water, where you don't drink water. Oh, wow. And people will do this for like a week. And uh, some people do it to the to the extreme that they won't even take showers. They won't like expose their bodies to water. Wow. And is, what's the, I mean, what do they, what do they gain from that? I think it's like <laughs> the same kind of like auto, um, autophagy kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and you do lose a ton of weight. Interesting. Um, so, maybe someday I'll try something like that, but no time soon. So my grandma that I re- referenced earlier when I said she's the one that was actually pretty open, open to hearing me talk about like, you know, unusual ideas around religion, even though she's very conservative, she does fasting for religious purposes mm-hmm. against medical advice. Oh, and she, it's, she's got, and she'll mostly do those water fasts, like you were saying, or she'll go extended periods of time where she just has broth. Oh yeah. And I'm talking like 20 days, 40 days. That's awesome. And she does it for spiritual reasons. And she, I mean, I don't, I didn't, I guess I never really asked her. I should probably ask her, try to get some more insight on, on what she's doing there. But the fact that it does have so many potential benefits, health benefits, that there might be some, uh, some, you know, some per- health perks for her doing that. So I think I can definitely see how fasting could be a spiritual thing. And I think on some level, it, maybe it even has been already for me because it's just like, I think that a big part of the, the religious fasting experience is I can do this because you are going to take care. I'm doing this, um, because of you, right. you're not going to let anything bad happen to me. Um, or even if you do let something bad happen to me, like, uh, you know, I was doing it for you. So it's like worth it on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with the fasting that I've been doing, it's like, I don't know. It's just like, I'm doing this for, to, to test myself on some level. Um, I, you know, I want the health benefits. I, I mean, I think that like feeling like my peripheral vision is extended is fucking cool. It's cool. Um, but on some level there is like some kind of a, uh, a, a spiritual test component to it. Like, can I do it? Yeah. It's, it's the disciplining yourself part. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing because, because disciplining yourself is, hear me out, is it's literally imposing some sort of transformation on yourself that if you give up doesn't doesn't happen that it only happens if you are disciplined 100%. enough and and you know you don't know what's going to happen as a consequence but all this cool stuff you're talking about your vision and your mind being sharp and stuff those are surprises but you you gained that from yourself from within yourself by by being disciplined and forcing it out of you and 100%. that's amazing you you brought that out of you and you didn't know it was there. That's amazing. That's some Jordan Peterson shit. I, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was taking a walk trying to get the steps in and I was thinking about, you know, there's the idea that everything, everything that exists now started out as imagination, you know, mm-hmm. and people made it happen. And I think that doing things like not even necessarily fasting, but losing weight anyway is super powerful for people because it, for when you're fat and you're out of shape and unhealthy, the skinny 
healthy you is just an idea and then you make it reality and it's God like damn right you can do so you can if you can do that that way you can do it with tons of other things that's true and it, it's amazing it's amazing and that that might have to be where we end this podcast that's a good today. one god bless all right thanks man yep well there you have it that's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go i hope you enjoyed thinking along with us i know i know it's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode 